All right, so uh, before I start, I would just like to state for the record that today is June 23rd, 2020, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Lyndall Hume, who is in Princeton, Indiana. Is that correct? Yes. All right, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Oral History Initiative. So just to start off, uh, when and where were you born? Well, um, I was born in, in Pike County, Indiana. Um, my uh, uh, mother's parents owned a farm, so my grandparents owned a farm. Mm-hmm. And during the Depression, uh, they were about to lose the the farm uh, due to the mor- uh, mortgage they had. And uh, my mom and dad uh, bought the the farm from them, so they didn't lose it. <clears throat> and so I was born in the same house that my mother was born in. Wow. Uh, and I was born in, in uh, uh, on June 7th, 1942. Um, I was the uh, eighth of nine children, okay. two sisters and, and uh, 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 six brothers. Um, but that, this was... Uh, the the address was Winslow, Indiana, but we lived uh, in the uh, country, um, actually closer to Oakland City, which was in Gibson County. But we were in, we were across the county line, about a mile into Pike County. So interesting. We, we had a, a Winslow address, <clears throat> and uh, the, back at that time, uh, the uh, all of my brothers and sisters had been born in that same house. <laughs> yeah. So it, it wow. was, it, you know, the doctor would come out and <laughs> when he was called and yeah, deliver the babies. Oh my gosh. Uh, That's and interesting. then I, I was raised there, um, on, on my dad's farm. Um, it was, they were just, just coming out of the depression and uh, my my dad had the farm, but he also had a, um, uh, a an underground coal mine that he and and a couple of my brothers um, had just dug by hand, basically with a pick and shovel and a wheelbarrow. Wow! To to dig a a coal mine to provide not only for their our family but for uh, uh, some of my dad's uh, brothers and sisters families that yeah. uh, worked, worked in the mine with them uh, later on after they got they dug the shaft and had two mules pulling the the uh, cart out of the out of the mine sure. and filled with, filled with coal he also had a uh, later on in that same area had a had a sawmill. But in 1942, the year I was born, he was he, he got a job uh, um, at a coal mine in uh, oh um, at Elberfeld, Indiana. It was called the Dittany Hill Coal Mine, and uh, so we we went. We went from 
having practically nothing, I guess, before I was born to, I, I was raised in pretty good times. My, yeah. my dad, my dad's farm was <clears throat> more of a, I, I, we, he had, he had about 300 acres, uh, okay. of farmland that, that he owned, but, um, the, uh, he, we also farmed, uh, about 300 acres or a little more that, that he, uh, leased from the coal company. So we farmed, we farmed, uh, 300 acres, uh, grain farming, had about 60 head of cattle and, and about five or six milk cows. Wow. And that meant, that meant, uh, no matter how young you were, <laughs> you, as soon as you were old enough to get out and do anything, probably at nine or 10 years old, sure. you were, you were working on the farm and up in the morning, uh, before, uh, school milking had to be done. Cattle had to be fed. Um, uh, chickens fed all all of the farm chores. Uh, then yeah. early early in the spring, uh, as soon as you got home from school, you got on the tractor and went to the field to to uh, plow or disc or whatever. Farming was a lot different then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So farming, farming 300 acres at that time would, would be more like, uh, some of the farmers today would farm, uh, th- yeah. maybe, maybe 3000 acres. I mean, it, right. it would be that big of a difference. Sure. But I, uh, I worked on my dad's farm, um, uh, with, with my brothers, um, <coughs> uh, and uh, my my brother Donald, who I served in the legislature with, he he and I were elect, both elected at the same time. But uh, he he was he was 16 years older than than myself, and and uh, when he he was in he was in the military when I was born. So wow, okay, he. <laughs> he he came home from the war and I was probably about, uh, three years old by the time he got home from the war and, um, world war two. Yeah. And, um, so he came back home to live there. And, and I, I, my first recollection of him was him trying to correct me, um, for, something I was doing wrong and, and I didn't know who this guy was. I told him to go home. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. My, my first recollection of my brother, Donald, who he and I later, uh, served, uh, 22 years together in the legislature. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he's still doing well. And, uh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, um, back back to uh, the uh, early days. <laughs> yeah. I I uh, graduated from Winslow High School in 1960. Okay. And uh, and uh, married my wife Judy in November of that same year. And um, my uh, we had a son who was born in. Uh, 
December of 
Uh, you know, I have a few additional questions and stuff about your childhood, but you know, you're feel free to continue with, uh, well, well you, you go ahead with, okay. with those and then <clears throat> sure. I'll, I'll, I'll start after that because <laughs> I'm well out of my childhood at this point. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand. So, um, what were your parents' names? Um, my dad's name was Austin Hume. Okay. And my mother's name was Myrtle Hume. Her okay. name, her, her maiden name was McRoberts. Okay, got it. And you mentioned that you had a brother, Donald. Uh, do you have, did you have any other siblings? Oh yes, I uh, like I said, I was the eighth. Yeah. So child out of nine. Yes. And what? <laughs> I, I went, um, you you want their names as well? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, my oldest uh, sibling was my sister Estelin. Um, she married Walter Eversall, so it was Estelin Eversall. Okay. Um, then then Donald was the second oldest. Uh, Donald Jim, <clears throat> and, uh, and and then. My brother Dwayne was two years younger than him. Um, okay. And then I, I had a brother Kenny, who was two years younger than Dwayne, and um, he had he he was killed in an uh, accident with uh, a, a couple of his friends picked him up. They were going to go play baseball, and they were in. A pickup truck crossing a railroad track near our home, and and a train hit them and killed all three of them. Oh my gosh! So that that was my brother Kenny, and then um, uh, after after Kenny was my sister Esther or Evelyn, um, and she married um, she married Bob Mead, so it was Evelyn Mead. Okay. <laughs> And then after her was my brother Lester, who lives in Aurora, or well, in Big Rock, Illinois, up near Aurora, Illinois. He worked for Caterpillar there. And uh, then I had a brother, Jerry, who passed away in 2002. And, um, and then my younger brother, Richard, who, who lives in uh, Newburgh. Wow. So, pretty big family there, and that's, that's impressive. I think I got them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope, I, hope that, I hope that adds up to nine, because if I... I think so. <laughs> I, I missed one. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, that would be easy to do with a family that large, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful life growing up on the farm with with. Uh, all my brothers and sisters, yeah. uh, close. They, sure. uh, they were, they were either still at home or, or um, uh, as I was growing up, or lived very, very near us. So, right, very close, very close family. Okay, that's great. Yeah, um, who would you say was the most influential person in your childhood? Um. You mean of, of my family? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm, 
sure that in my early childhood was both my dad and mom yeah. who, who um, were hardworking, honest people wouldn't wouldn't uh, do anything wrong under any circumstances they were as honest as any two people could possibly be yeah and uh, did everything they could for us and all of us kids and which had to be a tough thing to do with sure. that many children but <clears throat> we did have a we did have a farm so I mean I didn't have electricity at, at, at at my house until I was uh, starting in the first grade, so yeah, grew up grew up without electricity on the farm. Wow, um, uh, had a battery oper- operated radio that I, I recall when I was very young. My um, mom and dad, <clears throat> you you didn't listen to the radio very much because you didn't want to run the battery down. Yeah. Okay. They, they always wanted to listen to the news to see what was going on with the war. Sure. Um, uh, this, so I, I recall that happening. But mom and dad were <clears throat> obviously the the greatest influence on my early life. But probably after that was <clears throat> my brother Donald, who was who was a. Uh, um, uh, school teacher yeah and also uh he he was he's a quintessential teacher he 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 was loved by his students and uh but he taught he was teaching all of the time okay he had he had to have a student right so while we were in the legislature together for 22 years we were uh roommates we we stayed together all of that time while we were at the legislature and i was his only student so i yeah sure it was a constant education for me from him because he was he was always uh uh uh, he he was always teaching yeah and such a such a wonderful person right and such a brilliant person I don't know if you if you've interviewed him or plan to. No, I actually I do plan on interviewing him. Uh, I haven't been able to reach him yet, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try giving him a call again in the, in the future and try to get schedule something. Well, he's a, he's um, he and his wife are in a an assisted living facility, right? And so it it may be difficult for you to get to him. Yeah. But anyway, uh, um, I, and I, I really hate to hate to single out any one of, of my uh, siblings that, that were more influential on me because they all were right. You know, of they course, were all very influential. Um, yeah. But uh, Donald was the one. <clears throat> uh, he and I. Uh, got involved in politics about the same time, although I didn't realize he was involved in in politics at the same time that I was. Wow. Because okay. I ran I ran for uh, precinct committeeman in Oakland City in Gibson County, where I lived, um, in in 1966, 
and I didn't know what he was doing because he lived in uh, Chesterton, Indiana, near uh, near Lake Michigan. Okay. So all the way across the state, I had no idea what he was doing politically. Sure. <laughs> I just knew, I just knew he was a school teacher yeah. there. And, uh, wow. But he was involved in, in some campaigns that were going on in, in that area. And both of us uh, in the Democratic Party, our, our, my mother's father, uh, uh, Alexander McRoberts, <coughs> was uh, a precinct committeeman, uh, a Democratic precinct committeeman. Uh, he died before I was born. He also served as a county councilman and a county commissioner in in Pike County. Yeah. And so we had we had I guess politics in our blood, but I I didn't I I didn't get it from him because I I didn't ever get a chance to meet him. Right. But in uh, in 1966, I ran for precinct committeeman and was elected, and was precinct committeeman then for about. 10 years in the Oakland city area. But, um, uh, and probably the most influential, um, uh, person in my political career at that stage was Bobby Kennedy. Oh, okay. Who, who I truly, truly admired. I felt like <clears throat> he was the one that got John Kennedy elected. I thought he was the brains behind the outfit. Yeah. I always, I always, of the world of Bobby Kennedy, and uh, so when he ran for for president in 1968, he was in the Indiana primary. Uh, uh, I I was asked by some of his campaign staff if I would be the uh, coordinator for his campaign in Gibson County, which I was thrilled to death to do. Yeah. So that's that's where I really got my first opportunity to to do something other than just precinct committeeman. Uh, yeah, which okay. Is an important an important job, but <clears throat> to uh, to um, coordinate a campaign in, in a county for a presidential candidate was quite a step up for me. Right. Working full time, going to going to uh, college full time. So it was it was. But it was something that I really wanted to do and, and truly enjoyed. Yeah, okay. And, um, um, and by the way, we uh, we won Indiana. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, okay. Actually, actually won Gibson County, too. Wow, nice, but, all right. <laughs> um, um, but I, I had the opportunity to to um, meet him. He had a... He had a uh, breakfast at the executive inn in Evansville for his uh, uh, campaign county coordinators in uh, the southwestern Indiana area. And he, uh, of course, as as one of his coordinators, I got a chance to go to that breakfast with, with both he and Ethel. Wow. And okay. It was. A, it was. A, it was what you would consider to be a rather intimate uh, breakfast because yeah. it it was just the campaign coordinators plus he he and Ethel and 
and, and maybe a couple of their staff people. Wow. Who, who uh, I had met. Uh, I lived, <laughs> at that time, I lived in a little four-room house with my wife and, and two children um, and uh, in Oakland City. And uh, it was not not a not a very nice house. Okay. It, it was it was nice on the inside, but it, it it was one we were renting, and it wasn't a very nice house on the outside. Right. And okay. Wonderful neighbors, and so here here I was uh, there at home one day, and up drives this big black, uh, really nice car, and two guys get out. Uh, dressed in, in suits which that was not something I never, <laughs> never I, owned, I owned the one I got married in yeah okay <laughs> so these two guys come in and knock on the door most wonderful people I had ever met they uh, uh, one of them's name was Eugene DeLay and uh, he uh, he kept in touch with me and sent Christmas cards up until just oh, about ten years ago, and I don't know what happened to him, but he was wow. from the he was from the uh, uh, New England area. Okay. And, but anyway, that uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> we, um, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> it, it was it was uh, quite a quite an experience. Uh, um, helping to coordinate that campaign, having the opportunity to meet um, uh, Bobby Kennedy at, at different uh, different occasions, but the the one I, I recall the most was the the breakfast because that's where we had an opportunity to really talk to him. Yeah, <clears throat> but uh, I was I was at events where we uh, where he spoke. All all over southwestern Indiana, not just in Gibson County, but so that that was what really got me involved in politics. Then then my brother Donald moved from Chesterton back to Evansville, and uh, or, or the Evansville area. And was teaching school at Howard Rusa in Evansville, but living in uh, living in Pike County. Okay. Um, and uh, I lived in Gibson County, um, but uh, probably about oh, six or seven miles from where he lived, but in two different counties. Right. And he decided in 1970 that he was he, he was going to run for state representative. Uh, well, I had just graduated from uh, Oakland City University, still working at Potter and Brumfield. Yeah, where I, I stayed with Potter and Brumfield till till they uh, they moved out in, in 1998. <clears throat> but anyway, I I was. Uh, I was uh, uh, out of college, but getting ready to start at the University of Evansville to work on my master's in business administration. Okay. 
but my brother Donald wanted to run for state representative in in the primary. At that time in 1970, the districts the the district that he lived in um, took in Pike County, uh, Warwick County, Spencer County, Perry County, and uh, Du Bois counties. And it was a two-member district. Back at that time, they, they, they still had two-member, some districts were two-member districts. And there were three people running in that primary. One was Dennis Hickey, uh, who had served several years uh, previous to uh, uh, his running. Okay. And, um, and the other person who was running who had not been in the legislature was Mike Phillips, who you may have heard of him. Yeah, I think so, yeah. He, he later, later became Speaker of the House. But Mike and Donald... Uh, um, uh, ran in that that uh, primary, and um, uh, Mike Mike beat Donald by about I think about five hundred votes. So wow. and and Dennis Hickey was a, he he was he was in the race, but we knew he was going to win. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was basically between Donald and Mike, and uh, so um, he Mike, Mike won in 1970 and <clears throat> was elected uh, to the to the House of Representatives. Uh, but Donald had said he was going to run again in '72 because the districts were redrawn. Um, and the district he would run in was Pike County and Davies and Martin counties with a part of northern part of Du Bois County. Right. So he, he ran uh, in that race and lost by two votes. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. And uh, <clears throat> he, he decided not to challenge it. Uh, but which it, it turned out to be a good thing because um, 1972 was a disastrous year for Democrats. That, okay. was, the year, that was the year that that uh, Nixon beat McGovern by a, a landslide, yeah. and and the Indiana House of Representatives went from um, uh, went went to. Uh, a, a difference of uh, the Democratic Party having 27 members and the uh, Republican Party having uh, uh, whatever the <laughs> yeah the, the, the rest of it. So, so they were in a, they were in a basic uh, basically a supermajority. The Republicans were yeah wow. So so uh, Donald would have been defeated in that general election if he had won the primary because the Democrat who did defeat him in the primary by two votes was defeated in, in the fall. But then in 74, he said, I'm going to run one more time. And he said, I want you to run because I was working with him on his campaigns. Okay. Yeah. So, um, 
I think I think he was more wanting me out of his hair so he might have a chance of winning. <laughs> <laughs> I turned out to not be a very good campaign manager. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> but just a minute. Sure. Anyway, uh, uh, in 1974, <clears throat> we we both decided to run, and I was I was just a few credit hours away from getting my MBA from the University of Evansville. Uh, okay. But, but I <clears throat> I decided that I would I, I, I assumed I'd be defeated anyway. So, so I decided I wouldn't wouldn't finish up my degree till after the election was over, and then I'd start back in in the the next spring to finish up my MBA. But um, uh, we we both won in 1974, which was uh, just a complete reversal of 1972 because Watergate uh, uh, just just about uh, well the Democrats went from 27 members to I think 56 members <clears throat> so it was a huge gain in the House of Representatives in Indiana right. sure so so in in 75 and 76 when Donald and I served our first uh, in our first term in the General Assembly we were in the majority and by the way, the rest of the time I was in the legislature, which was a total of 40 years, I was only in the majority those two years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> I crazy. I was in the minority the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, he and I uh, uh, sort of <clears throat> had a chance to look at, uh, because we were in the majority, we had a chance to look at the various committees and which ones we thought were the most important and especially for our districts sure. and uh, and so we decided that we we'd kind of try to get on different committees so we would have a greater uh, knowledge <clears throat> that we could share of, of what was going on in each of those committees he, he of course was very interested in education and so he was on the education committee and and one of the biggest issues in my campaign uh there, there were two really major issues in my campaign that uh, uh and and one was uh, the roads uh county roads at that time were funded entirely by the state government Mm, okay. The state, the state gas tax was the only funding that counties, cities, and counties had for roads, and the state was was not funding counties very well, and uh, Posey County especially, which was part of the district I ran in, I, I had Gibson, Posey, and uh, uh, I think six precincts in Vandenberg County. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was the district that I served in at that time, and uh, uh, but the 
the Posey County roads was the big issue because they were they were basically mud roads. Jeez. Uh, they they hadn't started out that way, but they had deteriorated to that point because of the freezing and thawing, and uh, it right. uh, it it just created a, a a real mess, and the people were <clears throat> the the local the local candidates running for commissioner and, and council, that was a big issue. Who, who was to blame for the bad roads? And they were yeah. blaming, they were blaming the county commissioners, the county councilmen. And, and actually they had very little control over what they could do because all of the money for roads came from the state. Right. There were, there was one, one exception to that. And that was, uh, at that time you could, you could um, assess a certain amount of property tax for bridges, okay. but only only for bridges. So, and, but it, when it came to the actual roads, it was strictly money that came from the state, and that was one of the things that I campaigned on because it was a, a lot of people didn't understand that. Sure, that yeah, makes it sense. It wasn't it wasn't a local issue; it was a state issue even though it was local roads. So that was, an, that was an area that I was very interested in. So I was on the Roads and Transportation Committee. And um, another issue that came up uh, during that first campaign was the police and fire pensions. Uh, I would meet and with the policemen and firemen, and, and they, they were all really concerned about police and fire pension. The state established the police and fire pension program, but uh, required that it be funded by the, uh, and solely funded by the property tax and local level. Mm, okay. <clears throat> so it was a state mandate without any funding. Right. And um, so the pension, the pensions for uh, and the way the pensions were uh, established was done by the state, but it had to be funded by cities and and um, and and that and, and that was that was a, another big issue. And so those were two two areas that I took a great interest in. Yeah. When when I started my freshman year in the legislature and worked on those to the point. <clears throat> on the Posey County roads uh, uh, during during that first two years uh, Otis Bowen was governor of the state and of course he was a Republican I was a Democrat so uh, uh, I was laying all the blame for the, the underfunding of roads on him yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and uh, and the Republican Party uh, for not for not funding roads, and I, I would get up and give a Posey County Road report uh, almost every day, okay, uh, and demanding that we do something to uh, uh, add additional funding to the roads, and and I said especially in in southern Indiana where we have uh, a, a lot more freezing and thawing than you have in the rest of the state. Right. It, the rest of the state, it might freeze and stay frozen, 
most of the winter, but in southern Indiana, it would freeze and 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 thaw out, and freeze and thaw, and that was they're just crumbling the roads. And, yeah. And so I, I I viewed that as a as a difference between roads in this area versus the northern part of the state. And I raised so much hell about that uh, at the microphone on the floor on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, that uh, I, I proposed a bill to establish a distressed road fund mm, okay. that only covered about seven counties in southwestern Indiana. Yeah. And it, it would be a it, it was set up as a special fund that would be a, that would be distributed based on need in those counties. And uh, of course, <clears throat> the the rest of the, most of the legislature was not in favor of that yeah. because it would take money from that from from their roads to send to southern Indiana. But right <clears throat> because I I. Uh, uh, was so fervent about my support for that and spoke on it on a regular basis and gave the road reports that uh, uh, some of my re- Republican friends said, I'm going to vote for your bill just to get you to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and so and got that bill passed and and established a distressed road fund that, that that stayed in effect for uh, many years. Uh, finally, it was changed, <clears throat> but I was in the Senate by that time. But <clears throat> it was uh, it was um, uh, in effect for a lot of years and did a lot of good because yeah. uh, they were able to they were able to improve the roads in <clears throat> in in those areas that, that were just. Uh, back in horse and buggy days. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> but anyway, that that was a uh, that was a success for that at that point. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um Thinking, yeah, uh, you you were talking about uh, positions in the in the legislature, right? <clears throat> um, in nineteen, I think it was nineteen seventy. Uh, it was after the after the seventy six election, so it would have been nineteen seventy seven when we were reorganizing. And and the Democrats were in the minority at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, um, I uh, noticed that the majority had a majority whip, and uh, I spoke to Mike Phillips, who was the minority leader at that time. Um, Phil Bainbridge had been the Speaker of the House for the Democrats in 75 and 76 right. when we had a majority. But but Mike Phillips was the minority, he was the uh, majority leader and then then became the minority leader 
in 77. And uh, I asked him, why did we not have a minority whip? And he said, well, I'll check into that. Hmm. And he did, and he came back and he said, how would you like to be minority whip? (laughs) (laughs) And so... And so I was a I was appointed as minority whip in in seventy seven, and uh, sir, I was the the first minority whip in the House of Representatives. <clears throat> By the way, my brother and I were the first brothers to serve in the same house at the same time. Wow, that's interesting. Jeez. Okay. <clears throat> uh, uh, in, in the history of Indiana, we were the first brothers to serve in the house. Now there was a there was a um, a, a brother team, uh, one in the Senate and one in the House um, during that time. Okay, but we were the first to serve in the same house. Wow! Yeah, and uh, and then uh, um, so so I. Uh, a couple of firsts there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I think that since then, uh, uh, U.S. Senator Mike Braun had been elected to the House of Representatives, and his brother had been a member of the House of Representatives. But I think before they actually served together in the House, his brother was appointed to some position and left the house. So mm, I don't know okay. if they ever actually served together in the house. Yeah, I would have to check that. That's interesting. <laughs> but they, 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 they certainly didn't serve together as long as Donald and I did. We were in the house uh, uh, for together for eight years. Yeah, that's remarkable. Seatmates seat for eight years and roommates for 22 years. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. But um, um, anyway, so I, I was uh, um, I was a House Minority Whip at first, and, and all the time I was in the House, it was the House Whip. But Mike Phillips was a big influence on me in, in the House Representatives. He, he told me early on, this, this was when we were in the majority, he said, uh, get that rule book, the, the House rules. And he said, study that. Yeah. <clears throat> and study the state constitution because that's what that's what controls what we do here. Right, right. So I did that. I, I made it an I, I made it a a, a practice to, to I mean it's the, the rule books are not really that big <laughs> right. tomes of information <clears throat> but they, it, it still uh, very few people took the time to study the rule book and to know the rules yeah yeah and uh, and even fewer took the time to study the constitution and uh, and that also controls how you how you legislate what you can and can't do <clears throat> so <clears throat> doggone, I don't know what the heck's happened I guess I'm not used to talking this much no that's that's okay well I think a lot of times uh, people are surprised about how much they actually have to say so 
um, which is good. That's that's what we want. We want people to be, you know, to have lots of stuff to tell us. So that's the whole point. Um, but anyway, I I I took that that information that Mike gave me about studying the rule book and the Constitution, and I I continued that when I went to the Senate. And yeah. I, I I served in the House from. Uh, 74 to 82 ran for the Senate in 82 and was elected <clears throat> elected to uh, the uh, um, to the state Senate right and uh, Frank O'Bannon who later became governor <clears throat> was the minority leader in the Senate and so I went to him and I asked him I said why don't you have a minority whip? <clears throat> I, I was minority whip over in the house. Why don't you have a minority whip here in the Senate? He said, well, I'll check on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so he checked on it. He said, uh, well, would you like to be the minority whip? And I said, yes, of course, minority whip in the house and minority whip in the Senate, neither one paid any additional. It was just the, uh, the, the position, which, which, required you to, to kind of poll your members to see where they stood on issues and right and so it was it was um, it was a position of some some import but <clears throat> uh, not not a great deal when you're in the minority sure uh, but uh, we didn't have quite the, the the split that you have in the legislature now yeah it was closer. So yeah. a lot of a lot of times, uh, when majority had a piece of legislation they were interested in, <clears throat> they didn't have all the votes on their side. They needed votes on our side, so you needed the minority whip to know who would vote for what. Sure. <clears throat> so, so that was uh, <clears throat> it. That this is irritating. Um. Um. Let's see where where was I? Oh, you were talking uh, about just the you know how how much has changed between uh, the demographics of the House and Senate in terms of uh, political parties and yeah, uh, like I said, uh, only in the only in the majority that first two years <clears throat> didn't even know what the difference between majority and the minority was that yeah. first two years. Yeah, <clears throat> because I didn't. I, I had never experienced the minority. Right. Which, by the way, there's a lot of Republicans in the legislature today that have no respect whatsoever for the minority because they've never been in their shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, most of, most yeah. of the Republicans who are serving today have never served in the minority. They've always been the majority. It's it's like being born with a silver spoon in your mouth and not recognizing. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that you have that <clears throat> but um, so anyway that was uh, that, that was um, just kind of a touching on what was going on in the house like I said my brother and I were seatmates for eight years and, and sure. um, um And then in '82, when I was elected to the uh, to the Senate, I was campaigning 
a, a lot of my a lot of my uh, uh, the things that, that were driving me and and what I worked on and what I was really interested in came from uh, my district and and talking to people in my district yeah and um, although road road funding continued to be a an issue and and I worked on legislation to get uh, the uh, the gas tax increase while I was in the House of Representatives and um, we uh, I I was on the the committee that was established to to look at road funding and and so we came up with a gas tax uh, increase and and it was my suggestion that <clears throat> rather than us fall behind constantly on funding uh, funding uh, roads that we should instead of having a flat tax on gasoline we should have a tax on gasoline that was based on the price of gasoline. Okay. So it would be a percentage of the uh, price of the gasoline would be the tax. <clears throat> but if the, if the tax, if the price went up and the tax went up, it, it was kind of ratcheted. In other words, it didn't go back down. Right. The tax the price might go back down, but the tax didn't. It stayed, <clears throat> which, well, which uh, a lot of people might not be in favor of. But that's what that's what I thought would be helpful to provide the continued funding that we needed for roads. And we were able to get that passed, and it stayed law for. Well, I was in the Senate when when they changed that. Oh, okay. <clears throat> but. Um, uh, they they moved it back to a, to a flat eight I think eighteen cent per gallon tax. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Um. So I I continue to have have that interest in roads. Plus, plus I found it uh, right early on. I found it was really important <clears throat> to uh, uh, get to know the head of the uh, uh, at that time was called the Department of Highways <clears throat> and um, because you, you'd you be out in your district and um, find a, a, a state highway that had a terrible um, pothole or, or a dangerous condition uh, you could get on the phone and call the uh, the head of, of the Department of Highways, and I, because I had always, even even though they were they were usually of the other party, they were still friends of mine, and I would be able to call them and say, "Hey, out here on Highway 57, really a dangerous situation, and needs needs to have." This or that done to it, yeah, and and they would they would take care of that right away, right. And so I, I sort of looked at that as part of a legislator's job, 
to uh, uh, try to take care of the roads in your district. Um, and I, I recall um, uh, campaigning in Bicknell, Indiana. Hmm, okay. And uh, that was when I was running for the Senate <clears throat> the first time. And uh, I was knocking on doors, going door to door. And I uh, came to this nice brick house, uh, uh, knocked on the door, and and uh, an elderly gentleman opened the door and, and uh, was talking to me and and um, invited me in, and he and his wife uh, offered me a cup of coffee, and so we sat down at their table and had, had a cup of coffee, and, and they were talking about how they were going to have to sell their home, mm. and that they had uh, they had uh, always farmed their entire life until they retired, and they sold their farm, and the profits from the farm they used to build this, this home in Bicknell. <clears throat> and, uh, but their property taxes had gotten so high that they didn't have enough income to pay their property taxes. So they were going to have to sell their home and move to a, a less expensive place, lower taxes. Wow. And, and that, that really hit me. Sure. The, the, the unfairness of property tax and, um, and how it, um, how how, uh, how unfair it, it it was, especially to elderly people. <clears throat> and I started I started uh, studying property tax and, and learning everything I could about it. Right. And looking at ways that we could reduce property tax and and do it on a on a permanent basis, so that it wouldn't just go right back up. Because typically, when the legislature or Congress cuts taxes, they have a tendency to go right back up over time. Right. And so I was looking at a way to to I just felt that, that taxing on on property was was wrong from many standpoints, <clears throat> but especially for homes like this this couple had. Yeah, it was also unfair. I felt for businesses as well, and so I started a crusade to eliminate property tax. Hmm. Well, everyone thought I was crazy, which <laughs> was probably right. But um, uh, anyway, that uh, year after year after year, I would put in uh, <clears throat> a constitutional amendment. I'd file a constitutional amendment to eliminate property tax. Well, there's a lot of people who agreed with me on it, but uh, that that would have meant raising other types of taxes, and they weren't right. too fond of that. <clears throat> so uh, anyway, uh, I I finally narrowed that down because if if you looked at the property tax at that time. The, by far, the majority of the property tax was used to fund schools. Okay. So I narrowed my uh, 
quest down from uh, uh, eliminating property taxes to a constitutional amendment that prohibited funding schools through property taxes. Right. Which would have been a dramatic decrease. It would have meant the state would have had to take over funding schools, but which you could you could have uh, just filed legislation to do that. Uh, but I wanted a constitutional amendment because I knew that, or my concern was that we would lower, we would uh, take the schools off property taxes, but then we would start adding things back on. And, uh, uh, and, 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 property tax would go right back up. So right. that's why I wanted the constitutional amendment. Just a minute, when I have to take another drink. Sure, no worries. But, um, so there, there were things, and, and, and I, I had said earlier that I was concerned about the uh, police and fire pension plan. Right. Well, even when I was in the House, I was working on that, and and we got we did get legislation passed <clears throat> to uh, uh, fund the police and fire pension plan. With um, at first, um, it was um, funded through a cigarette tax, and uh, so that that reduced property taxes on, on the local level. It was mandated to go to fund uh, police and fire pension plans. <clears throat> but it didn't completely eliminate the, the local portion of it. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so, um, um, and, and later on, after after we had passed uh, 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 gaming, uh, the lottery, uh, we, we established uh, a fund from the proceeds of the lottery that would go to fund a police and fire pension. Right. So, so we did get that, that taken care of over the years, but it took some time to do it. Um, but um, I'm kind of... I'm kind of meandering around here. No, no worries. It's, uh, I mean, you're, you're covering a lot, covering a lot of ground. So it's, uh, that's pretty good. Um, uh, but yeah, whenever you're ready, I have, I have some more questions to perhaps point you in a certain direction, but, uh, yeah, what you're doing is good. So. Well, anyway, that was, that was, that was what got me started on the, on the trying to, to reduce property taxes, which, yeah. which that, <clears throat> that took that, uh, that that became one of my main goals that I spent a lot of time on in my early years in the Senate. It, it took up until I think it was uh, uh, 2006 or so uh, before uh, uh, we finally got something done to uh, fund. Uh, teachers' retirement, so that it was not totally dependent on um, school funds. Right. And and then later on, 
um, we we got legislation passed <clears throat> to take school funding off of property tax and funded by the state. So that made a dramatic decrease in in property tax. And, sure. Uh, so we, so uh, so some of those things that I uh, that I worked on for so many years eventually came to fruition. <clears throat> and, but um, so anyway, uh, now what's what's your uh, yeah? So I guess you know you kind of hinted at how you first uh, sort of developed into a politician. Do you remember what the first sort of uh, time was that you really started to have a political outlook? Was it in your childhood or was it in college or? Well, I, I think it was uh, before. I, it was in my childhood. Okay. <clears throat> I remember a, a, a very good friend of mine um, in, and I can't remember what grade it was, but it, it, it was, um, it would have been in uh, 1952, I think. Um, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, was a Republican. Okay. And, and he was he was uh, in school. He in in grade school. He was. Uh, supporting uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Okay. And I was supporting Adlai Stevenson. Mm, okay. So uh, we we had our own little campaigns, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was I was uh, somewhat of an artist. I I I was. Uh, pretty good and I, I drew a picture of Adlai Stevenson on a poster board and, and uh, took that to school and you know it was the teachers the teachers kind of encouraged that kind of thing yeah and uh, so um, th that was that was probably my first real uh, taking a position and and you know you, you had you had to to learn about the candidate you were supporting and the differences between the two. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, but I, I, I think also growing up, uh, my mom and dad and, and my grandparents all were truly uh, devastated by the Depression. Sure. And uh, FDR was kind of our... Uh, savior in in the views of my family and and yeah uh, so F FDR uh, did some rather dramatic things to turn the the economy back around and to create created the WPA the CCC and and uh, uh, Social Security sure and uh, uh, so I, I, I recognized the impact that uh, 
the Democratic Party had because the Republican Party didn't support those things. Right, yeah. And, and um, so anyway, yeah, that, that's, that sort of laid the foundation for me being a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and it, it has always been and still is my my feeling that that the uh, Democratic Party has always been the uh, party that has tried to do things that help the individual who's who's got a, a daily working job mm-hmm. and not not a wealthy businessman or a wealthy uh, industrial uh, company or uh, look, look, looking out for those who are less fortunate right and and a much a much a much uh, broader tent of um, uh, of bringing people in uh, uh, and, and trying to trying to support people who have um, or no fault of their own but have very difficult times and um, and sometimes people uh, it is their own fault but uh, they, they I, I never felt like that you could write people off and uh, I felt like the Democratic Party was the one who stood up for people um, Especially the people who were um, who had had more difficult times. Right. Interesting. And so that 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 formed early in my life uh, as a result of hearing about the depression and hearing what happened and and seeing how that affected my parents and and my my dad's parents. My I I I did. Uh, get to know my my grandparents on my father's side and and also my uh, grandmother on my mother's side but I, I never got to meet the real democratic politician in in the family who was my my grandfather on my mother's side ah okay interesting <laughs> yeah um, so that, that's 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 sort of where I got foundation of my political views, I guess. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Um, moving back to, uh, you know, when you first got elected, what did it feel like your first election day? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> uh, first of all, I was running against a, a four-term incumbent. Okay. And, uh, and uh, he was... Uh, he was a uh, radio announcer on one of the most popular radio stations in Evansville, so everybody knew his name. I mean, he was he was on the radio constantly. Okay, what was his name? Joel Deckard. Joel Deckard. Okay. Joel. Joel. Okay. Yeah. J O E L Deckard. Um, he um, he had served uh, four terms, and I was I was. Uh, I was basically a precinct committeeman who had never run for anything other than that. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, um, I, w- I was 
working on my MBA at, at uh, University of Evansville, and and uh, the guy who had run against Joel Deckard in uh, in 1972, the Democrat who ran against him in 1972, <clears throat> was Sam Blankenship, and he just coincidentally was in an economics class that I was taking at U at U of E. We were in the same class. Oh, okay. And I was I was really pushing him to run again. I was I was really trying to get him to run again. And he he uh, said he wasn't going to do it. He he just continued to refuse to even consider it. Yeah. <clears throat> he was defeated so badly in 72 and so uh, he uh, he said well why don't you run and I, <laughs> and I said I've never run for anything other than precinct committee in my life right <laughs> and, and he said well why don't you run well none of us knew at that time and that was in that was in early 74 yeah and uh, before the primary, none of us knew that Watergate was going to have the effect it did on the 74 election. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it came to the last day to file, and he had, I could not get him to file, and he, he told me to file. Well, a friend of mine, Terry White, uh, who was my campaign manager in every race I ever had and um, <clears throat> still a dear friend. Um, he and I got in the car, drove to Indianapolis. First time I'd ever been in the state house. <clears throat> went to the Secretary of State's office and filed for state representative uh, with absolutely no thought of winning yeah but uh and and no one else thought i would win uh, <laughs> wow <laughs> I, I i i wasn't i wasn't making a, a lot of money so uh my campaign was going to be run on a bare bones budget yeah and uh it was difficult to get contributions from anyone my uh, my brother donald was running and he so we we weren't going to try to get our family to support our campaigns. Yeah. So uh, I I think that the Democratic Party uh, the the uh, out of Indianapolis um, uh, Phil Bainbridge <clears throat> drove down to Princeton and met with me and gave me a check for $500. And um, during that campaign, I spent about $2,500 on that campaign. Wow. Which, which uh, uh, you'd have to, if you were going to run a race for that same district today, you'd have to spend $250,000. Oh my gosh, yeah. <clears throat> then I, I used 2500 But 
we made the most of it because we campaigned constantly. Every every free minute that we had, we were out at every gathering. Uh, uh, I would I would go to uh, county council meetings in Posey County. I'd go to uh, uh, city council meetings in Mount Vernon and Princeton, and I'd meet with the police and fire and yeah. And I'd meet with farmers groups, and I would anywhere that I could find people, we we would pass out uh, some brochures that we had printed at a local printer here in Princeton, and uh, so we we worked hard, but it was still uh, in the back of our minds. We knew we didn't have a chance of winning. <laughs> right, because because everyone knew Joel Deckard because of his radio background and the fact that he'd been the state representative for yeah. four terms, and uh, so we 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 uh, Terry White and I and and my wife uh, we really studied the each precinct. And the numbers in each precinct, and how they voted the last time, and and what we could expect as a turnout in each precinct, and yeah, we we on election night, uh, we were watching that, and uh, had the TV on, um, um, after after the polls closed, and of course we were out on election day uh, till the polls did close handing out brochures at, at, at precincts that we felt we might have some kind of an impact on we had we had different uh, people located at different precincts and so we went around picked everyone up and, and then went stopped by a restaurant and had a bite to eat and then came to my house and had turned the TV on, and first precincts came in, and the precincts in Vandenberg County, where Jewel Deckard lived, um, he just beat me by a few votes. Yeah, which which, which shocked the devil out of us. <clears throat> and then we got to looking at what was going on in Gibson County, which is my county, and and we we went went to Princeton, where they were counting the votes. And I was doing, I was doing relatively well. Uh, I was beating him in virtually every precinct, and so it came down to what was going to happen in Posey County. And those precincts came in, and and I had defeated him by around, I think, eight hundred votes, mm, okay. <laughs> which, which was which was a close race. But it was, <laughs> but but you talk about. Uh, I mean, my my kids were doing uh, cartwheels in the living room, and, <laughs> and uh, I was about I was about as as excited as they were. Yeah. And uh, at that time, I could do cartwheels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were all just truly very excited about all that because we sure. First of all, we we didn't really think we had a chance, but to win it was 
was just one of the most <laughs> exciting times of my life. Yeah, sure. That, that very that very first win, uh, and and then then we were also on the phone talking to my brother, and and he he was checking, and he was he was leading too, and he won. So it was a it was quite a quite a night. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, did your uh, feelings change with each re-election? Or did you get used to winning, or was it exciting no, every time? I, no, I didn't. As a matter of fact, my brother and I uh, knew that we were going to be one-termers. Okay. <laughs> we, we knew that from the very beginning because uh, we knew how politicians, successful politicians were. Yeah. A successful politician can go into a crowd and know half the people in the in the uh, room. Yeah, maybe maybe know everyone in the room. Right. Well, hello, Joe. How are you doing, Joe? How's your family? How's your kids? How's that little girl of yours and all this stuff? Donald and I, neither one could remember a person's name from the time they said their name till the time we <laughs> turned around. Right. And we, it was. It must have been a, a a human trait because we couldn't remember people's names, no yeah. matter how no matter how you know Dale Carnegie didn't help me at all in that respect. <clears throat> I took Dale Carnegie course the one year I was out of college and not uh, okay going yeah before I started at U of E and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So we knew that you know there's no way in in the world that we'd get reelected no matter what because we also recognized that that uh, the uh, uh, that Watergate had that impact because by that time we were seeing that it was not just in our area but it was all over the state and all over the country. Yeah, that uh, Water Watergate had that impact. Um, so we we assumed we'd be a one term. So the next the next time we both had opposition and and uh, not in the primaries. Neither of us had primary opposition, but we uh, we uh, did um, uh, have opposition in the fall, and they were always well funded. Yeah. So it was each each one became a uh, uh, down to the wire counting each vote. Wow! For both of us, and and that is that way uh, every year that I ran in in the house. Wow! Uh, every every two years, well, you never quit campaigning when you're in in the House of Representatives. Sure, sure. You're, you're out attending meetings you, you devote your life to it basically yeah did you have to change your campaign strategies at all or no we did the same things okay they, uh, attended every meeting with possibly good and, yeah and, uh, but, but did they did they get around though 
the zone. And and even even the years when you weren't campaigning, you were you were still uh, trying to uh, uh, go to as many meetings as you could. And, and uh, so that that was uh, and and the strange thing about that that first year, I I had uh, taken a very strong position on labor. And okay. served on the labor served on the labor committee. Yeah, and uh, and um, I, I I got a, a tremendous amount of support from labor as a result of that. And Bill Hayes was the uh, congressman that was elected in 1974, <clears throat> a Democrat. Uh, beat Roger Zion, who was the Republican, <clears throat> and uh, uh, so he had decided he was going to run against Vance Hartke in the '76 election for U.S. Senate. Uh, Phil Phil didn't like serving in the in the House of Representatives in Washington, so he was going to run for the U.S. Senate, and okay. that was occupied by Vance Hartke, who was a Democrat, so he ran against him in the primary, which left that seat uh, without a Democrat running. Yeah. Well, the, the labor groups in uh, Evansville uh, got together and and um, started working on me to get me to run for Congress. Okay. And I, I was certainly, I certainly felt, you know, honored by that. They had a, <clears throat> they had a big dinner and at one of the political restaurants in Evansville. Sure. Um, and uh, had me, uh, had me come, and they introduced me and endorsed me to run for Congress, and wanted me to run for Congress, and I, I really did not want to run for Congress. I didn't want to be away from my family that much. And yeah, and I just, I just really did not want to run for Congress. And, but they were insisting that, that I should, but, sure. um, but I didn't, which I'm, I'm still glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Even though the Democrat who did run won that year. Mm, okay. Uh, the guy, out, out of out of nowhere, <laughs> and he still he still won. Wow. What about uh, what was your first impression, or what were you thinking when you first walked into the state house for the first time as an elected official? It was about it was about the same as it was every time I walked into that state house. Yeah. I, I, I was I was always in awe yeah uh, even even up to when I left there I, I retired in 2014 on my own <laughs> I, I, I was probably the luckiest politician ever uh, I uh, served 40 years and and uh, uh, 
was never defeated. Yeah. And um, 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 it 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 was it was just it. You felt humbled walking into the state house, and you felt in awe because it you, it's just so full of history. Sure. Sure. And uh, so, and you, you felt like you were, you were becoming a part of that history. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so yeah, it was it was thrilling in a way, but uh, a feeling of awe. Yeah. Okay. And I even when I would walk out of the uh, out of the state house. Uh, at night, and, and many times, you know, you, you didn't get out of there till uh, you'd, you'd, you'd work at your desk until uh, 9 or 10 o'clock, and you'd be walking out, and you may be the only one walking in those halls. Yeah. And, and that was, that was you, you, I still had that feeling of just a reverence for that institution. Yeah, that's neat. Hmm. What about... Any, anytime I walked out of there, though I usually was not walking out with myself, or by myself, yeah. up until 1996 when my brother retired, <clears throat> and, and he, he, he wasn't defeated either after his first two primary defeats. He wasn't defeated... Uh, either so he retired on his own in 1996 ah, okay but um, up until then anytime I walked out he and I walked out together because we right. stayed together we drove together we <laughs> we did everything together yeah what about uh, what were your expectations for the legislative process and was it more or less complicated than you expected? Well, um, it, it, it was, it's difficult to say that it was more or less complicated than I expected because I had no idea. Yeah, sure. I, I was totally ignorant of the process until I got there because, I, like I told you, the first time I'd been in the state house is when I went there to file right. in the Secretary of State's office. <clears throat> but, um, um, now it was uh, uh, it, it was just something that uh, you you relied you relied entirely on uh, people who had been there uh, for some time, right? Who, who could who could help you and uh, help you help walk you through the process? It wasn't like it wasn't like today, and and I'm not sure that I I even think the way it is today is good because they have uh, basically after you're elected they start having right after the election they start having meetings of the newly elected legislators who basically go to school on. How, how to be a legislator yeah and so they have 
uh, uh, I haven't been there since 2014, but I'm assuming they still do the same thing. But a new legislator comes in, they they go through a training process. And I've always felt like that that takes away a little bit of the uh, individual spirit of the legislator. Mm, Okay. Because because you're you're being trained and uh, uh, who knows what propaganda is being brought into your mind while you're you're going through this training process sure but uh, and 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 when I first when I was first elected the the the, uh, legislative services agency was not nearly as sophisticated as it is today. Yeah. Uh, that was pre pre computers, uh, and uh, the you you would sit down with someone from legislative services, uh, one of the attorneys, and and you would actually sit down and write the legislation with them. Yeah, uh, and um, that that really, uh, I mean, so I, I guess you were you were kind of learning from the, uh, the attorneys and legislative services on how to prepare legislation, right? Going through the filing process and everything was something that you learned from your friends like. Mike Phillips had been there before us, and he took both my brother Donald and I under his wing and pretty well taught us everything we needed to know okay. on how to get things done. And and uh, other other legislators, Jeff Hayes, who was from Evansville, uh, who has since passed, was was a was a good. Uh, he was a big help to us. Uh, he, had, he had served there earlier too, and uh, so it, it was uh, it was a uh, a different system than they have today. But I think it was it was good because as a legislator, you you learned and you you learned from other legislators, not from people who are coming in to train you to be a legislator. <laughs> right. Sure. What about uh, your interactions with your constituents? What was that like? Well, it, it, that that was probably, and, and probably still is today, the, 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 the best thing about serving in the legislature. Okay. It is is the interactions that you, that you have with your constituent. I I have to say that I was really fortunate from the standpoint that I I don't I think I think I could count on one hand the the number of times that I had someone who confronted me that wasn't just very nice and and. And yeah, very, very respectful and and just easy easy to talk to and and if they had a problem they'd tell you what it was and you'd do everything in your power to help 
and uh, that, that's one of the things that I, with, with the staff over the years that I was in the legislature, when we first started out, we didn't have any staff. Our, our, our offices were our seats on the floor. Yeah, sure. We didn't have offices. You, you stacked everything you had under your seat or on top of your desk on yeah. the floor. <clears throat> and and we didn't have cell phones and and they had a they had about eight phone booths set up just out off the floor of the house. So you needed to call, or if you got a call from someone, they'd call in and and someone would come in and get you, and you'd go answer the phone. <clears throat> so it was totally totally different. But the the the, the constituents. Uh, that that I dealt with over the years were always so nice to me. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I, 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 if I had to say there's one thing I miss about the legislature today, <clears throat> it is that uh, uh, contact with constituents. Yeah, because that that was that was the best part. Sure. Um. What about the interactions with with other members of the General Assembly? What, what were those like? Well, you know, it's it's it, it's uh, a tale of two legislatures. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> legislature prior to the Tea Party and mm. then the, the after Tea Party. Yeah, so you've uh, had uh, an interesting, uh, yeah, you'd have an interesting experience about this because you've served in you know so many different sort of time eras of uh, the assembly. So, yes, uh, prior prior to the ultra right uh, gaining so much influence in the Senate, and all of the time I was in the House, <clears throat> you were. Whether you were a Democrat or Republican, you, you had friends on both sides of the aisle, and you you'd kid around together and you'd do things together, and it was uh, yeah, there were there were issues you disagreed on, right? But but eighty to ninety percent of the legislation that passes in the legislature is probably true today. Is that uh, it's it's uh, a bipartisan vote, right? And uh, but the 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 way <clears throat> the way you were treated before the ultra right came in uh, was so much so much different, so much better. Yeah, uh, a much a much better relationship. Uh, Across party lines. Interesting. Uh, and and one of the reasons that one of the reasons that I decided to retire from the legislature was that it it, it just wasn't uh, just wasn't the same. So why do you think that sort of transformation took place? Well, there's. Uh, uh, this, of course, is just my opinion. Sure. But, uh, 
in the back in the um, late seventies, early eighties, um, there became a a much more um, a, a greater divide between the parties, right? And 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 the Republican part party became much more conservative and so you had more and more conservative members uh, and uh, to give you an example okay. the, the um, uh, president pro tem of the senate was Bob Garden when I first went into the senate in 1982 yeah. and uh but that that uh, he and he was he was one of the legislators that I considered and still do today uh, considered a friend, and he he respected my uh, knowledge of the rules of the Senate and and the and the Constitution and would appoint me to the Rules Committee even though the Rules Committee t- usually didn't bring in the minority whip. And mm. it was usually the upper leadership. But he would always appoint me to the Rules Committee. And uh, we we worked together so well and, and were good friends. And as a matter of fact, when I retired and they had a little retirement uh, party for me, uh, Bob Garton came to that and said, Lyndall, don't retire. We need you up here. Ah, okay. And, and that was, but, but over the years, the Republican Party kept shifting more and more. And I, I think you probably never heard of him, but Lee Atwater, <clears throat> hmm. who, who was uh, uh, an active uh, member of the right wing of the Republican Party back during uh, Reagan's era <clears throat> he started he started the ultra right and okay. uh, and 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 then there were others who would take who, who, who took up where he left off and and it it finally created this almost uh, a, a, a huge percentage of the the people uh, felt that uh, government was bad. Mm, okay. And and uh, so we've got to we've got to reel in government. We've got to we've got to do away with the people who are in there and and. Uh, uh, and and bring in people who who want less government. Yeah. So there was a, a drive to do that, and I think that was sort of the the birth of the Tea Party. To, okay. Which which I, I I hate to even dignify it with that name Tea Party because that that supposedly tied to the Boston Tea Party, but mm, okay, yeah, absolutely no connection. I mean. No, no, uh, 
nothing in common whatsoever. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Boston Tea Party. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, that that trend continued, and finally, Bob Garden, who was, I, I think, and maybe still is, the longest-serving president pro tem of the, of the Indiana Senate. Yeah, was defeated by one of those Tea Party guys down in and um, in Columbus, mm. Indiana. And uh, I, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe that that happened. But and then, then once the the Tea Party, uh, or the or the I'm going to call them ultra right because okay. I don't like to even. <laughs> term Tea Party. Sure. But the ultra-right members of the Republican Party, um, and and they they took an organization that I uh, that I was a part of and um, and they made it a, a part of the Republican organization as opposed to being uh, the right to life organization when when I've dealt with them over the years they were a bipartisan group and we had members in the Democratic caucus that were that were uh, uh, opposed to abortion as I was and am yeah uh, but that wasn't good enough because the Republican Party was able to take that and twist it and call Democrats, baby killers. Okay. There's not one. There's not one Democrat that I that I know in, at any level of government that's in favor of of abortions. Right. They're not. They're not in favor of abortions. A, a lot of Democrats are in favor of a woman's right to choose, uh, but there's still a lot of Democrats who feel that that the choice. Uh, there has to be a good health reason, right, for for any kind of an abortion. But sure, this, there are other Democrats who think that the, that a woman should be able to choose. But I'd always been I'd always been uh, pro life, and before I even knew there was an organization called Right to Life, I was pro life. Yeah. The first year that I ran, I didn't know there was a group called Right to Life. They never contacted me. I never knew anything about it. But I, but my own position at that time was that I was opposed to to abortions. And um, but they, the Republican Party, had has been able to take that and change that from an organization uh, that is a bipartisan organization. Um, trying to prevent uh, or, or, or to reduce or prevent abortions, they've t- they've changed that into a wing of the Republican Party, and and it's usually an ultra right wing of the Republican Party. Yeah, and uh, the same thing was true with it holds true with the with the National Rifle Association. There is no way on earth the Democratic Party is going to remove the Second Amendment from the Constitution. Right. 
I mean, uh, anyone ignorant enough to be afraid that the Democratic Party is going to uh, uh, take away their Second Amendment right just simply means they have no idea what it takes to change the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, it, I was there when, when we voted uh, on the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. And, and Indiana passed the Equal Rights Amendment. <clears throat> but for Pete's sakes, it, it takes uh, two thirds of the of the states have to ratify. Uh, it has to pass Congress, and then it has has to have two thirds of the states ratify it. Yeah, I was there when we passed the constitutional amendment that um, that Birch Birch Bayh, who was the U.S. senator at the time, got through Congress. Uh, to lower the voting age to 18. Uh, I mean, I know I know the process, and I know how hard it is sure. to get a constitutional amendment, and especially if it's a controversial one, it's not going it's not going to happen. Yeah. And uh, so, so, but but the NRA is no longer a bipartisan. Um, uh, gun owners group. It, it's it's not a National Rifle Association for people who are out here uh, with their shotguns and their pistols, uh, target practicing and and <clears throat> their rifles going deer hunting. Yeah, they don't represent that group. Uh, they represent. They're they are a wing of the Republican Party now. Uh, I had. When I was in the legislature, every year I'd have uh, an A plus rating with the NRA on votes. Mm. But if there had been someone run against me who was a Republican and was, uh, they would they would have NRA would have supported them in the heartbeat. Yeah, and, they? and and I think the same thing holds true for the Right to Life organization. They they are no longer a bipartisan group for that their issues. They sure. are wings of the Republican Party, and that has all shifted into this ultra right uh, group that that is now. Uh, even though they didn't have a majority uh, of the of the majority when I was there. They were the ones. It was it was the tail wagging the dog because every um, moderate thinking Republican in the Senate had to go along with whatever the the farthest right member of the Senate wanted to do because they knew that if they didn't, they'd be challenged in the primary by an ultra right. And just like Senator Garden was, and be defeated. Yeah, yeah. So, so they they went along with with some of these things that they didn't honestly believe in, but they knew they had to do it to protect their position in in the in the Senate. Yeah. So anyway, it got to the point where it it, it just wasn't it it just wasn't the same. Right. That's interesting. But, um, 
What about, uh, since you served in both the House and Senate, what were the differences between the House and Senate, in your opinion? I always like to say this because I think it pretty much sums it up. The Senate is like a botanical garden. Okay. And the House is like a zoo. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> uh, you've got a hundred members, and and uh, and they're 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 all up and about and doing their thing, and and uh, um, I went through a period of time where where you didn't want to go into the House of Representatives if you were a member of the Senate or the public. Yeah, because it was, first of all, it was embarrassing. Yeah. The things we were doing, they, they, it, they, it was, it was a period of time when John Gregg was Speaker of the House, because he came from the back row as a back row legislator, and he was a, he was right in the middle of all of the silliness and childishness that was going on, and, and uh, they, they would. They would pin, you'd walk in and you might not even realize it, but when you walked out, you had pinned onto your coat or, or taped <laughs> onto your coat. Oh my uh, gosh. Kick, kick me or, uh, you know, it was, it was just childish stuff that was going on constantly. Wow. <clears throat> but um, but even, even, even before that childishness and that nuttiness went on, uh, there was there was never the kind of decorum in the house that there was in the Senate. Yeah. The Senate were always re- relatively subdued. Um, uh, if 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 I were going to take school children to the legislature. <laughs> I would have taken them to the Senate, but I would not have taken them to the House because <laughs> that, that that was not a good yeah good impression. The, when I first went into the House, it wasn't that way. Yeah, we, it, there was more decorum, right? But but it just gradually got uh, rowdy. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, what, what did you think about the process of generating a bill? It was pretty much the same in the House and the Senate. Okay. Um, uh, I think I think over the years that I served in the Senate, <clears throat> the uh, uh, being in the minority in both, uh, I, I felt that there was more consideration for your legislation uh, if you were a member of the minority. In the in the Senate than there was in the House. Yeah, um, and it was it was much better from that standpoint. Although we went through a couple of years there where <clears throat> the uh, uh, chairman of the committees, which were of course been Republicans, had been told, "Do not give a Democrat a hearing on a bill." Hmm. Okay. Uh, if they come to you with a bill that you think has merit, tell them 
that you will give them, give them a hearing on the bill if they will have their name removed and put you on as the first author. Wow. And so, consequently, uh, House members, uh, Democrat or Republican, would never send a bill to the Senate, to a Senate Democrat, to be the first sponsor on a bill. Interesting. Because, because they knew they wouldn't get a hearing on it if they did that. So, uh, But that, that went on for a few years, uh, where the, you just you just knew you weren't going to... You weren't going to get a hearing. I had a I had a bill that virtually everyone supported, and it was in the education <clears throat> committee. It had been assigned to the education committee, and um, I went to the chairman of that committee and asked for a hearing. And he said, "Well, I really like this bill. I I I, I want to give you a hearing on it, but you're going to have to take your name off and." And um, put my name on as the as the author, and then then we'll have a hearing on. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, I uh, I'm not going to play that game. Right. It's a good bill. It needs to be heard, and and it it's um it's something's going to be good for good for the state, <clears throat> and and you know it. And so. If you're not going to give it a hearing with my name on it, then I'm, then it just won't get passed. <clears throat> and so it didn't. <laughs> wow. I, I didn't get a hearing on it, and he, but I didn't take my name off of it either. Do you think, uh, has that changed at all, or is that still the way it works? Well, it, that only that only happened for... Um, a couple of years. Okay. <clears throat> so I, I'm I'm sure it's it's changed. Okay. <clears throat> but uh, I do remember going through that that period where the. But here's here's probably the difference. Okay. The the Democrats uh, are in a super minority. Uh, especially in the Senate, yeah. So, so the Republicans uh, don't feel threatened by them in any way. So they probably are more willing to give hearings. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, so simply because it's—I uh, mean, unless it's a unless it's a bill that's put out there, it should be a political bill. Right. Planning playing games in the first place but if it's a bill that has merit and, and would would have bipartisan support I'm sure that they that they give them a hearing because yeah, what what's the Senate got now 10 Democrats or 9 yeah something like that yeah I'm not sure exactly so, I mean it's, a, it's it's not a big threat no no <laughs> no yep <coughs> When it came to voting on on bills and legislation, did you have a good idea of how people would vote before they actually voted? Well, of course that that depended on whether it was a controversial bill or not. Right. <clears throat> um, 
like I said earlier, 80 to 90 percent of the bills are bipartisan bills and are supported and passed pass with a, a over 90 percent of the vote in favor of it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's only the controversial bills and, and uh, uh, yeah, as as the minority whip, I knew how our members were going to vote on controversial bills, <clears throat> and and I my my assumption was how I knew how how the Republicans were going to vote <clears throat> according to what what the bill was about, but. Yeah, if if it was controversial, it, it was usually going to be supported. If it got that far along, it was going to be supported by the Republicans, and and sometimes, sometimes a few of the Republicans would surprise you because it would be so far right <laughs> that mm. that even even they wouldn't cross that line. Yeah. Um. What would you say the public doesn't know about how the Indiana General Assembly operates? I think probably the biggest um, misconception that the public has is that party makes no difference. Mm. <clears throat> they 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 assume fairness. They, they assume that you know, party labels are not going to determine what happens in the General Assembly and um, that, that everything is handled on a, uh, every piece of legislation is handled on a fair and open basis. Yeah. Um, and um, they don't, they don't understand uh, I, I'd say the majority of the people do not understand the um, the uh, divisiveness of the uh, parties. Okay. And and how the the the, the uh, how, how how important it is. Uh, who's in charge yeah it's like me when I was first elected I was in the majority and I didn't know the difference mm-hmm. <laughs> it took a, it took serving in the minority to really fully understand the difference between the majority and the, and the minority yeah sure I remember when Kermit Burroughs was speaker of the house when I was in the house representative and I uh, and, and Kerman had a way of always letting a Democrat <clears throat> get a bill or two yeah. through committee and, and on the floor for a vote. And at that time, the Speaker of the House is the one who handed down every bill. Right. They'd, bring, they'd bring out a bundle of bills there before the, the speaker and he had reached in the basket pull out a bill and say house bill 1881 uh, uh, representative Colder and he, the, rep, 
the author of the bill would stand up and and explain the bill, and it would go that way all day long. And, yeah. and, and you would always get a large pileup of bills for the last day or two. It may still be the same way, but there'd be a, a there'd be a huge number of bills on the calendar for the last couple of days and uh, you'd go talk to uh, I, I'd go up and talk to the speaker and I'd say Kermit are you going to hand my bill down to, today yeah I'm, yeah I'm going to hand it down yeah I'm going to hand it down mm, okay. and, and then uh, um, and we'd, we'd be in session till 11 or 12 at night on those last few days and so because you're and you never knew when your bill was going to be handed down it, right. it wasn't it wasn't done in any order it was whenever the speaker handed it down and so you sat in your seat you were there you voted on every bill and you you were you were kept there because you knew your bill was going to be called down sure. and you you had to be in your seat when the bill was called down and so you'd sit there and you'd sit there and you'd sit there and then uh, the last bill would be handed down and, and you'd still be sitting there waiting on your bill. And you'd say, okay, uh, I'm open, the chair's open for a, a motion to adjourn. <laughs> <laughs> and that'd be it. And it would be the last day. You, your, bill didn't, your bill was dead from that point on because it didn't get called out. Wow. But that that happened to me so many times. But they they would use it, they would use it as a way to keep everybody in their seat uh, instead of up just walk out and not come back. I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but that that happened to me a number of times, but, and and it always pissed me off. And I'd always go tell, I'd let. Speaker Burroughs know exactly how I felt about him. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> of course, that like water off a duck's back, he, he didn't worry about that. Yeah. He achieved his purpose. <laughs> uh, how, uh, how did your legislative service affect your family life? Uh, pardon me? Uh, how did your, your service in the General Assembly affect your family life? Well, that's something that that most people have no idea. Yeah. Uh, back um, now, now the uh, legislature uh, is is run much more efficiently than it had been before, um, and and most of the time you're. You're only there, I, I forget what the schedule was, but it was Monday, Tuesday, then Wednesday would be a committee day, and Thursday, and then then uh, you'd be off Friday. Mm-hmm. So you'd, you'd actually leave Thursday night to drive home, and you'd be home Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then go back to session on Monday. But yeah. I, I never... Uh, and I've always felt badly about this, and I especially feel badly now. But I, uh, I was glad I didn't know this when I retired. 
in 2014, but later on that year in 2014, my son, who I who was 50, I think 55 years old in 2014, he uh, uh, after this this was. I had retired in 2014, so that meant my last day in office was election day in November of 2014. Well, about three weeks after that, my son uh, went in for uh, his, his, his stomach had been bothering me. He went in and got tests and yeah, ran a colonoscopy and they found out he had stage four colon cancer. Oh my gosh! <clears throat> and, and so uh, that was he got the results of that back in December of 2014. So 20, 2015 and sixteen, and then he passed away in in February of twenty seventeen. Wow, that's but, terrible. He he lives he lived here in Princeton, and so during that period of time, I I would be over at his house a lot. Yeah, and be with get spend a lot of time with him. Sure. When when he was feeling well enough to for us to do anything, but all of the years that he was growing up, I think he kind of resented me being in the legislature. My daughter, on the other hand, she, she got a big kick out of it. She liked it. Okay. And she liked me being in the legislature and she'd come up and, and had free reign and running all over the state house. Yeah. And, uh, and, and my wife was, was very, uh, supportive. Uh, and, um, so it, but it was my son who I, 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 I never got to go to, um, you know, with the interim study committees you have in the summer time, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get get to go to his ball games or, uh, I didn't get to spend time with, with my son that most parents do or. Sure. Or my daughter, for that matter, but but um, so it it and and in two thousand it was about two thousand seven or two thousand eight. Um, I, I I was reelected in two thousand six, and so the, that next year or so, my wife said, "Why don't you not run again?" Okay. Well, uh, that would have been 2010. Would have been when when I would have been up for re-election. Yeah. Uh, and so I told her, I said, okay, uh, I've, I've been there, I've been there plenty long. I don't need to be there uh, any longer. I can I can retire. <clears throat> Someone else would come along and do a good job, and so I I had. A, agreed that I wouldn't run in 2010 and then I don't know sometime maybe a year after that in in 20 2008 or 2009 she said oh I know you want to run again why don't you run one more time 
run to 2010, and then then retire. And so I, I agree, that's what we'd do. I'd, I'd run one more time in 2010 and then retire. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, I I did file, and, and I ran, and no one filed against me. Wow. So I was running, running out of post, and um, and then my wife went in to get uh, a knee replacement um, in May, and, and they screwed up on the anesthetic and just really burned her lungs. Oh my gosh! And um, so she. They, they said it'll be, be about three weeks <clears throat> and um, they, um, they had her in the hospital down in Evansville for about three weeks and, and she hadn't improved at all and so they said we want to send her to Indiana University Hospital there in Indianapolis and um, there's a really good pulmonologist there that think can help her. Okay. And so we went we went to to Indianapolis and uh, and she was in there for about two weeks and they or a week or so and and, and the pulmonologist said I, I'd like to take a biopsy of her lung. And well we always my my understanding of biopsy was like a needle biopsy mm-hmm. uh, small right sampling and and uh, and so my wife said well what do you think and I said no I'm not going to make that decision for you you decide what whether you want to do that they had said it was going to take probably uh, six weeks or longer of steroid treatments to clear it up. Yeah. But but the pulmonologist wanted to do a biopsy of her lungs. Well, they had done every every kind of test, you know, CAT scans, MRIs, and anything and everything you could think of. So they knew what was going on with their lungs. So I'm not quite certain what the need for a biopsy was. But sure. <clears throat> but my wife finally, I went in that next morning. And she said, I've decided to go ahead and have the biopsy. Well, when they did the biopsy on her, it was it was a, a major surgery, and they, they cut three sections out of her lung and wow. then clamped, the, clamped them back together. Jeez. And, and, uh, uh, and she was intubated, and when they do that, they... they put you into a drug-induced coma. And so she was in ICU for uh, about a week and um, in, in a drug-induced coma. Wow. And they called and my, my son, his wife, and my daughter were up there at, at Indianapolis. We were all over the hotel. And they got a call that morning and they say, you need to come over here because your wife, I, we don't think your wife's going to make it. Well, we never had any idea yeah. that, she would, 
in that critical condition. Jeez. And so we we get a go over there and and uh, and anyway, she, <clears throat> probably about three hours she passed away. Oh my gosh! And uh, so anyway, I I was in, I mean I'm, if I had been opposed in in the the election, I would probably have withdrawn. Yeah. <clears throat> Because um, I, I, I wasn't in any condition mentally to go through a campaign of any kind. Of course, yeah. Yeah, but since I wasn't opposed, I didn't withdraw. But I had told her I wouldn't run again. And so I, I knew that I was not going to run in 2014, even back then. Yeah. <clears throat> so. legislature or not being in the legislature would have affected her uh, her her outcome but um, it was it was uh, just a, a, a situation where you know I, I, I every year <clears throat> for either Two and a half months, or or four months, I was away from my family. Yeah, and and so that that that's that has an impact uh, on. I don't care who you are. Sure. <clears throat> if you've got if you got a family that you're very 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 close to, and, and then then that that really becomes a. Uh, uh, a bad part about serving in the legislature. Yeah, it can be tough, yeah. Wow. Um, now, earlier on you had mentioned some legislation that you had worked on during your time there. What would you say was the most controversial legislative issues that you dealt with during your time in the Assembly? The most controversial legislator legislation legislation that I dealt with that I personally had, or that uh, just that you may have interacted with, you know, in terms of voting on, you know, what 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 were the big topics going on during your service? Well, I I, I think I think you you have to understand the difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party yeah. to to recognize what becomes big controversial issues. Okay. Um, the the uh, on on most issues you'll have Democrats on this side of the issue and you'll have Republicans on the, the same side and you'll have Republicans on the other side, and you'll have Democrats on the other side. And right. it's all over the place. But when it comes to legislation affecting the working individual, mm-hmm. uh, and if it's, if it's legislation where the Republican Party feels that it's negative to the 
business community. Right. Then it's going to be a very controversial piece of legislation. Yeah. Uh, as as an example, and probably uh, I, I I hadn't thought about that, so there may be other big issues. But sure. The, the probably the most controversial was the right to work legislation that passed, which took away the strength of the unions. Mm, okay. It just it just basically gutted the unions and. And it happened, it, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, an Indiana uh, singled out only state in doing that. It was something that, that was being done in every Republican-controlled state in the nation. Yeah. They were, they were taking away the power of uh, working people to join together and to stand up for the fact that they are a part of the business. They are, one side of the business is the capital, mm. which the Republicans only consider. But, but a, a business that is nothing but capital is a business that can't operate. You have to have the labor as, a, as another part of that. Sure. And labor, labor needs to be compensated, and uh, their conditions and their uh, safety and um, every aspect of the of the uh, contribution to a business that labor puts into it is mm-hmm. just as important as the capital that someone put into it. Yeah. And and the Republicans do not see that at all. They okay. don't even consider that. It's, you take that job, or if you don't take it, somebody else will. Right. Well, they, they don't recognize that people have devoted their lives, they've established their way of living and their lives based on that job, and they're doing everything that they can to make that company succeed. But the Republicans don't care about that. They just care about the, the guy that put up the capital. Interesting. And, and the stockholders. And so when it came to taking away the strength of the unions and, and the, the Indiana Chamber of Commerce has uh, has always had a substantial influence on the legislature and uh, particularly the Republican led legislature mm. and so the, the, it doesn't make any difference how um, uh, worthy the piece of legislation might be relative if it's brought to them by the Chamber of Commerce it's going to get heard it's going to get passed yeah and especially now that they have a supermajority right but uh, that that is that that was probably as far as a general 
piece of legislation that was controversial. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> that that was that was one that it just it just truly uh, a split that should have opened the eyes of a lot of working men and women in this state. That the party that actually supports the working men and women, and and a lot of working men and women are members of lo- of labor unions, but I guarantee you that every working man and woman is a beneficiary of the negotiations that the labor unions have achieved over the years. Uh, their, their safety in the workplace, their, their pay levels. Uh, uh, if you're working at a factory that is non-union, but doing the same thing that a factory down the road is doing that is union, the non-union is going to pay about the same as the one that and, and they're going to try to be as close as they can because that company that's non-union doesn't want to be unionized. Right. So whether you're a member of a labor union or not, if you're doing a job that is that would make you, by definition, a member of labor, not maybe not organized labor, but labor, then you are benefiting from what labor has done and it is doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you look, if you look at the history of what labor has done to improve working conditions in this nation as a whole, you every every working person has benefited from that. Right. And so that was a very controversial, uh, and but but equally controversial, but but less known to the general public is the um, redistricting legislation that comes up every 10 years. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, I mean gerrymandering is a way of life and it's not democrat or republican. If the democrats had control, they would gerrymander just the same as the republicans. It's it's a uh, it, it's it's just a part of the beast, right? And, and the one the, the party that's in control uh, is not going to give up that power to gerrymander and draw districts in in favor of their party, and the party that's not in control is not going to want to give it up because they're hoping they get in control and they'll be able to do that same thing. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very, it's very controversial because, um, districts are drawn with, with micro precision anymore. Sure. Uh, And, and, and you'll see, you'll see districts that are, uh, split up and by, precincts uh, because this precinct votes heavily Republican so we want it in that district this precinct votes heavily Democrat so we don't want it in there we're going to put it over here and dilute it with this and and so uh, the the people and I and I served on the elections committee in both the House and the Senate and I was the I was the uh, ranking minority member on the redistricting committee. Yeah. Every year that we redistrict, 
with the exception of 2011. I, I was in, in 1981, in 1991, in 2001, in 2011, I wasn't. But sure. I, I, uh, we, we as the minority party had the same, um, uh, 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 the same, the same mechanisms of, of drawing lines, the same computers, the same database. Yeah. We, we had everything that the majority had so we could see just exactly what was happening with whatever maps they gave us. We could run the numbers on it yeah. and we could supply them with maps which would do just the opposite and put us in control. Yeah. And so I, I, had, I had that opportunity to serve in that position which was a which was not only it was worse than a, a thankless position, because your own members, after the after the Republicans drew the map, and there wasn't anything that you could do about it, your own members would say, "Well, you took such and such out of my district." Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have anything to do right. with it. I was in yeah. the minority. They didn't come to me and say, "What do you want to do here, Lindell?" Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but. Yeah, but every, every, that, that's that is something that uh, the only way that's ever going to be changed is um, if if there and I don't think there's any, I'm not sure there's any way you can even do it because if you appointed a a uh, bipartisan commission, yeah, uh, you're going to have you're going to have the partisanship and then. The Constitution requires, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment because the Constitution requires that the legislature will determine the seating of its own members. And, and so they have, they have a constitutional right to say whatever maps are drawn and whoever draws it, we're the ones that have to pass it. Right. And so they, they'd never pass one that they didn't want. Sure. If you're in, if they had the majority, if the Democrats had the majority, they would. So it's, it's, it's a really, really difficult issue to resolve. And I'm not sure how you do it, but a, a bipartisan commission where that you absolutely had to have a, um, an agreement by both parties. And that's never going to happen. Right. So uh, we'll we'll continue to have gerrymandering, and the Republicans <clears throat> will will without question be in control in in twenty twenty one. So they'll they'll maintain the districts very much the same as they have them, uh, yeah. or tweak tweak them a little so that instead of having ten Democrats in the Senate, you'll have nine. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's amazing. How how precise the the uh, numbering is uh, and, and the data is that that helps you to know exactly how a district's going to vote and and the, the the unfortunate thing is you you think well these are people how do you know how they're going to vote well you go they people don't seem to change that much yeah. And, 
Yeah. And even though even though we have a uh, mobile society, that, and and a lot of people move around, it, it seems that it doesn't have enough effect to to uh, change that. Right. Yeah, that's uh, it's still very predictable. Yeah, that's that's yeah, definitely a that kind of a a thing, a very interesting thing about government that I think a lot of people are kind of just wondering, like, why does this happen? But uh, yeah, 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 wow. And, and 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 a lot of people aren't concerned about it because they don't understand the difference between yep. the majority and the minority. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, what legislation that you worked on would you say that w was most complex? <laughs> most complex? Yeah. Well, um, through, through the years, I, uh, I, I, I was either author or, or well, I, I wasn't, I wasn't the author. I was, because if it was a, if it was a very complex issue, um, it, it wouldn't have been me authoring it. It would have been I would I would have was the second author. Okay. But uh, I was the second author on legislation to establish the Department of Transportation. Mm, okay. The the Department of Transportation uh, prior to. Uh, to its current organization was a conglomeration of Department of Highways uh, uh, and each each segment of transportation had its own little department and so um, I, I was on the legislation that established the Department of Transportation in, in 1985, Senator Joe Corcoran, who um, was from oh, um, oh, and then I think Lawrence County. Okay. Um, he was a Republican from that area, and, and he and I were the. Uh, uh, authors and, co and second authors of uh, creating the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, and and those were those were fairly complicated because the the Department of Environmental Management <clears throat> was a, a the, the the state the state uh, Department of Health uh, had various arms and some of them dealt with, with water quality some of them dealt with uh, air quality some of them dealt with all of the various things that that are now well they they also had all of the other things in the health related uh, field that the department of health still has today sure but all of those environmental aspects were just kind of off in branches, and we we put together legislation to combine that into the 
Department of Envir Environmental Management. And so that that was that was uh, pretty complicated. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um. Over, yeah. Over, over the years, I I uh, um I like I was telling you how I, I would um be involved with uh, something that would was going on or I'd meet with a constituent or some some issue would be brought to my attention and, and then I would I would champion that issue and mm -hmm. um, and I and I served on uh, uh, or I, I was fortunate enough to serve on the uh, what what when I first started serving on it was called the, the Senate Tax and Finance Committee and, mm -hmm. and it, it later Divided up into the uh, into the Senate Budget Committee and and the Senate uh, it, it was two committees uh, it was finance and and budget and, and so I, I forget what they're called today but there's there's two I served on both when when they split them I was on I was I was able to serve on two committees both one on taxation and one on, on budget but. So I, for years I served on the on the uh, the, the Senate the Budget Committee, and plus I, I served uh, for several years on the State Budget Committee, which is not just legislators but also uh, members of the governor's office. And you travel around all over the state to uh, during the summer to each of the um, each of the uh, state institutions of all types, and and you see what's going on. Uh, I've uh, I've I've visited virtually every prison in the state of Indiana, mm -hmm. uh, every uh, state university, um, state parks, any place that's a state. Um, a part of the state government that is spread out all all over the state um, that, that needs that comes to the state for money, and we we have to then put together a budget based on those requests. Uh, the state budget committee goes to those institutions. Um, uh, go. You, you you listen to what they're wanting you go you then spend maybe uh, three or four days there and you you walk around and you see what they're asking for what they're going to do with it and if you're going through the prisons you see the conditions there and that that got me very interested in uh, trying to do something about uh, our, our judicial and, and uh, our um, correction systems. Yeah. And I, I, I spent the last several years working on uh, issues that uh, I'm not an attorney, uh, but I served on, as a matter of fact, I was probably the only one on those committees that the 
both the Judiciary Committee and the Courts and Criminal Codes Committee, I was probably the only one who was not an attorney. Mm, okay, interesting. <laughs> but but I, I was very interested in what we could do because you can't just continue to um, to just lock people up. This country has more people locked up than any country in the world. Right. And and we need to be doing more to try to make life better for people. And those people that are in prison, do what you can to help them so that they don't come back. And that uh, this leads off to another story, but uh, I, uh, I, I, I worked with the head of the Department of Corrections and, and he was explaining to me how that um, if we if we offer and this was he was the head of the Department of Corrections during the um, oh, uh, gosh Daniels administration. Oh, okay. But he was he was a terrific guy. Uh, the the um, head of the Department of Corrections was, and he was he he was very thoughtful and and recognized that we were just not doing. You know, the the Constitution says that it would be the Department of Corrections. It's not the Department of Punishment. Right. It's the Department of Corrections. You're supposed to be trying to do something to correct bad actions. And and but he was explaining to me that eighty percent of those who are incarcerated that take some form of additional education while they're in prison, 80% of those never come back to prison. Interesting. Wow. And of those who do not take any additional education, 80% of them do end up back in prison. Wow. So, so it seems like, it, it seemed to me like a pretty... <laughs> simple thing to to do everything you can to help educate and keep people from coming back because right. so, many, so many people who were just they were in for a while and, and it's like he said he said every one of these people except those who are in for life or, or have the death penalty they're eventually going to get out yeah. so if we don't want them to come back then let's do something that we can to, to help so that they won't come back. And education is, was, was the key. So I became a very strong proponent of providing education to people who were in our correctional institutions. That's interesting. Okay. And, and, uh, but at the same time, and not any connection to that, right? Now, I'll tell you the connection later, but right now, I'll just say I was also a uh, 
a member of the Board of Trustees for Oakland City University. Hmm, okay. And then um, uh, I, but I had, I had always been a strong proponent of providing education for those people who are incarcerated. Right. Uh, and so I served on the Board of Trustees for a period of time, and then I, then I realized that Oakland City University was one of the major uh, providers of ed- educational programs for prisoners. Wow. And so I resigned from the, the uh, Board of Trustees because I felt it was a conflict of interest. Sure. No, no, one, no one suggested I do that. No one, I, I even talked to uh, the Speaker of the, or the President Pro Tem of the Senate about it. But, and, and he didn't recommend that I resign. But I did, I resigned because I felt very strongly about providing funding for those educational programs in prisons. Yeah. And I didn't feel right about doing that and and knowing that a significant part of that was going to uh, uh, Oakland City University yeah. that I served as a board, member of the Board of Trustees. So I resigned from the board. They have since, since I've retired, asked me to come back, and I've told them that. I'm, I'm retired, <laughs> but but um, I, I explained to them why I was resigning, and and they 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 understood that. Yeah. But but it was uh, it was something that I that I still feel very strongly about. And I I was very involved in rewriting, even though I like I said I'm not an attorney, but right. I was very very much involved. In rewriting the uh, uh, the criminal code for the state of Indiana, and okay. and and trying to uh, trying to make it less likely that someone con- convicted of shoplifting a loaf of bread wasn't automatically put into a felony position that required them to go to prison. Right. And, and, and we had, we had that as a a part of our law. (laughs) Any, any theft was a felony that was, that, that you could be sent to prison for and spend two or three years in prison. And it didn't make any difference what, and, and we we raised that. I think it had to be something over seven hundred fifty dollars before it was something that would send you to prison. Yeah, but it, I I just felt that that we were just sending too many people to prison, and it was a dead end for them. It was just it, it uh, they they were going to be. They were going to be getting into a cycle where they were going to be coming right back in again. Uh, it, so they'd be out for a while. They'd get with the same old gang, and they'd be because they didn't have anything to do. Right, couldn't right. Get a job, 
and they'd they'd be right back in prison for dealing drugs or whatever it was they were in there in the first place. Yeah. Or taking drugs or whatever. Right. And so I I felt we needed to really do things to, to try to keep from sending so many people to prison, try to do things to help help people and 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 I worked for a long time with a lot of a lot of different people within the Department of Corrections and all of our committees to to help uh, uh, resolve or, or or to make that at least a little better yeah and and I feel like we have we have made some improvements although we still we still have a long way to go, but um, I mean, it, it, it's just there's there's just so many things. Uh, sure, yeah, makes sense. Uh, there was a <clears throat> there was a guy here in town. Uh, his his son, I believe, uh, was I think. 18 years old and he was he was dating a girl who was 13 years old mm. and and the girl's parents let him come and stay with them and so he was he was 19 and she was 14 and then and then they signed the papers when she got old enough for him to marry her and so they got married and but but when they were dating earlier she had a baby so the the baby was born while while he was while while he was four years older than her and she was underage yeah and so he was he was married to her and then she decided she was going to divorce him, and this was some years later. And so she, they were going to have a fight over who got the child, and her attorney said, you don't have to worry about that. We, we've got the birth date of your child. You, you were underage. He's, he's guilty of child molestation. Um, so he'll go to prison. Yeah. And... They filed charges against him. They convicted him. They sent him to prison. Wow. And his dad, his dad was so upset he, he committed suicide. Oh my gosh! And so I, I, I just felt there, there's something wrong with this system. Yeah. And and I I looked at laws and in other states and what. And a lot of a lot of states had what's referred to as the Romeo Juliet law. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. No. But the Romeo Juliet law is is one that says that if if you're dating and uh, you're you're four years difference in your age, and you're dating and and the girl is underage, uh, then then that can be extenuating circumstances and and you you're not necessarily going to be charged with with um, I mean it's like a, a, a boy and a girl in, in school together right you know, one one might be a, a 
14 years old uh, freshman, and the other one might be uh, a 19-year-old senior. Yeah. And they're dating, and 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 then so you're going to send this 19-year-old senior whose girlfriend <laughs> because he's he's a child molester and he's going to be on a list. He's going to have to sign up the rest of his life as a child molester. And anyway, we we got the uh, and and this took this took a lot of cooperation and my friends on the on the judiciary committee and the and the the courts and criminal code committee. Uh, Senator Steele and I worked on that a lot together. But we got we got that Romeo Juliet law passed. Yeah, and and. Uh, unfortunately, it was too late for for this guy and his his father. But um, it, it's uh, there. There are things over the over the years that I've worked on that I feel like I've made a difference. Okay. Um, yeah. That's wow! Yeah, another just shows how complex some of these issues can be. Yes, it's it's not. Uh, it's just not. Everything's just not easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, this is totally, totally off from anything you've asked me. But okay, <clears throat> one of the things that. I was very, I felt very good about, um, and I worked with um, Senator Garden and Senator Joe Harrison on on computerizing the Senate. Hmm. Interesting. And this, and this was back in the this was back in the early nineties. Now, I had a. <laughs> I don't know how old you are, but this this is. A lot old. This this was before your time, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I had a uh, Tandy, which was Radio Shack's brand of a of a computer. Okay. I had a Tandy laptop, which almost no one had a laptop. There were yeah. there were radio there were Radio Shack. They called uh, uh, Tandy Radio Shack. Okay. Track. They, they called them trash. Yeah. <laughs> it was Tandy, Tandy Radio Shack <clears throat> computers, but Tandy came out with this uh, uh, 1100 HD. It actually had a hard drive in it. Now, wow. Now, you, you have to understand, my first computer was a Commodore, and it didn't have a hard drive in it. It, it had... It had these five and a half inch floppy disks that you slid in. That was the program, and anything you used it for right. came off from disk. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, uh, this this um, uh, Tandy HD eleven hundred had now hold on to your hats because it had a twenty meg, <laughs> not gig meg hard drive. Yeah, and and it used uh, the little uh, about three inch um, hard or uh, insert floppy drives. 
Right. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and I, I use that all the time. I used it. At, I worked at Potter and Broomfield for 30 years. And okay. Then worked, and, and Siemens bought Potter and Broomfield in 1986. Uh, so I started in, I started working for them in 61. And I uh, in, in 86, Siemens bought it, but kept the name Potter and Broomfield. And I yeah. worked with them. I worked with them and, uh, until they sold out to Tyco in in 1990, in about 1999. But um, then I continued to work for Siemens, New York, as a as a contract employee. <clears throat> but during all that time, I worked <clears throat> worked for Siemens. I had my own little. Tandy HD eleven hundred that I used at work, and you stored any letters or whatever I was working on. You'd store that on uh, those little hard drive or, or, or floppy drives. <coughs> but you could, with the hard drive on the twenty meg, you could have a word processor, which I did have. Yeah, uh, and it was a word perfect word processor, and so I I would take that with me to the legislature and. I was the only legislator who had a laptop computer that I take down on the floor and, and I take it up to my desk and, and I could work on correspondence with my constituents and just give the floppy disk to my secretary and she put it in her computer and, and print it out and send the letters to my constituents. But, um, Bob Garden and, and Joe, Senator Joe Harrison from Attica, he, uh, they, he was the, the Senate majority leader and Bob Garden was president pro tem. And they had decided they were going to put a PC, and you may not even know what a PC looked like, <laughs> but a PC <laughs> at that time had a cathode ray tube like the old big TV sets. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. And, and I mean, they, they were they were like uh, a foot and a half tall and, and, and at yeah. least that they would take up your whole... Anyway, they had three, they had four of those set up on the leader's desk, the, both the minority leader and, and and the assistant minority leader and the, and the president pro tem and the and, and Joe Harrison, who was the uh, majority leader, they all had those on their desk. I mean, it was it was taking up their whole desk. It was set. It was going to sit there year round <laughs> and only be used during session while we were on the floor of the Senate. So very little usage. Yeah. And they hired a guy by the name of Vasily uh, Kalulius, who was originally from Greece. But he had worked with the uh, uh, Legislative Services Agency uh, because the Legislative Services Agency had had started computerizing, and um, and so he he understood computers and had his own company and met with Garton and Harrison and they were working on a plan of putting those. PCs on everybody's desk. Interesting. And, but 
but they were they were just trying it out with the four leaders to see how it would go. And so they had Vasily come to my cubicle <clears throat> because they knew I had that laptop, knew I had some computer savvy. Right. And so they had him come to me and, and ask what I thought about what they were doing. And I said, well, I think it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and because I said, just think about it. It's taking up the whole desk and you're only going, you're not going to be able to use it anywhere except down on the floor of, this, of the Senate. And it's going to be sitting there on, on that desk all summer long. And so it's just going to be used for three to four months each year. Right. And as it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. I said, now, if you, if you were to, be talking about using a laptop that you could take down on the floor and I showed him mine and it was it was probably a, a, a maybe a, a 10 by 10 when you've opened up the screen okay and and it was it was not a big laptop but it worked and um uh, I said, now, if you had something like this, you could not only use it here, but I said you could download the information, and uh, if you got a good enough computer, because I, I kept up on what was going on with computers, and they were in, they were really increasing the the uh, memory capacity of, of computers. Yeah, I said I said if you if you did that, you could take you could. You could download the, the bills on your computer. You could take them to your your weekend because uh, every every Saturday morning, uh, somewhere in my district, there was a legislative meeting. And I said you could take that, and if somebody asked you a question about Senate Bill One Twenty Three, you could just pull it up and you could say, "Yeah, that's in such and such," and then and it, it, or it's passed out of committee, or it's here or there. You could you could give an update on everything. Sure. And so he and I talked about this for like hours, and um, and so he he went back and reported to uh, uh, Senator Harrison, who Garden had put in charge of that computerization. And Harrison asked me to come down to his office, and we talked about it. And uh, so they started working on it from that standpoint then, and. Uh, bought some NEC uh, I don't even know if NEC is still in, still making computers but they made la laptops then and they were one of the first ones to come out with a, uh, a touch pad where the, you could activate an icon by just touching it with your finger mm, okay like your iPad has today <clears throat> but um, um so, so they they brought, I think they they bought six or seven of those, and and uh, I they gave one to me, and and so we went through the whole process of how how to use this, and, and we had we had one legislator from Evansville, real good friend of mine, really nice guy, but he was the kind of person he was he was like uh, he he was he was as old then as I am now <laughs> and he wasn't 
the kind of person who was going to take to 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 change. Mm-hmm. And my 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 advice to them was: if you're going to uh, set up this system, you've got to set it up in such a way that it's so easy that even this particular senator that I won't mention yeah. can use it and will use it. I sure. said, you got to make it easy enough that even he will use it. Right. <laughs> and so so that's where they, they started working, and, and, and they'd keep coming back to me for my input, and, and I became a part of that committee then that, that established that. And Indiana uh, was the first state in the nation and very likely the first uh, legislature in the world to have their their legislature um, completely computerized. Wow, that's interesting. We, we work we worked through every step of the programming process to make sure that it was as close as possible to the paper system that we had always used before, so that they could they could operate uh, simultaneously. So if some uh, legislators wanted the paper version of the bill, all they had to do is ask for it. Yeah. And, but if they wanted to, if they didn't want to deal with that stack of uh, 80 or 90 bills on your desk, you could have them all on your computer. And we have the best program, a whole lot better than the one that they're using there today. I think today they're using iPads. Mm. But we had the we had the NECs, and they were a whole lot better because it was a it was a uh, a system that was designed specifically for the uh, Indiana legislative system and the way we operated the with with all of the legislation. Right. And my brother was involved in doing the same thing over in the house. So I know that would have been back, he retired in 96, so I know that would have been back in probably about 92 that, yeah. we, that we were doing that. And that, that was, if you look at how computers have progressed since 92, you'll find that there's, <laughs> they, they were yeah. pretty primitive at, the, yeah. at that time. Big but change, we, were on yeah. the cutting, we were on the cutting edge with the NEC uh, yeah. uh, touch pads. Touch screens. That's interesting, yeah. Hmm. But uh, there was a big write-up in in one of the uh, national legislative magazines where they they came and they took pictures of me and Vasily and and, and wrote a really nice story. I forget the name of the the, um, magazine. Hmm. But it was um, it was a Going, I mean, it was talking about how the, how innovative our system was, and how it was the only one in the country. <clears throat> and uh, so, Indiana was first in that respect, and and I was a a key player in in getting that done. felt felt very good about that. Yeah, I think most people take that kind of thing for granted anymore, but. When it go, when it comes from starting from scratch and developing a system like that, sure, 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I've bored you for so long. I no, I, I do actually have some questions left. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is actually interesting. You're not. Don't worry. You're not boring me. Uh, you have all sorts of uh, unique stories. So um, this is yeah, great info. Um, let's see. I, I had done a little bit of research on s- some legislation or just some issues you had uh, been reported to have been involved with in the newspapers and stuff in Indiana. Um, one thing was about, I guess it was in 1999, uh, you were talking uh, with other legislators about limiting campaign contributions from people connected to the gambling industry. Do you remember anything about that? Uh, no, I don't. But, okay. I, but I, <laughs> I, I, I fully, un- I mean, yeah. I, I think that I think that was just kind of a no-brainer. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just. It was interesting to see that that was yeah being discussed. So it's like yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. There's another one in 2005, which I thought was kind of interesting, given you know and, and today in society there's so much debate about about you know sort of historical figures or, or how things should be ser- represented in symbolism, um, where I guess there is a, a ruling going on about whether someone could bring up the name Jesus Christ in the state house prayers. Do you remember anything about that situation? Yeah, I remember when that was, a, that was a, an issue. Okay. Uh, I don't remember myself being involved in it too much, but what 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 was it you? Well, basically, it's just that, uh, according to the newspaper, I guess you didn't quite agree with the ruling of omitting uh, Jesus Christ from from any from being brought up, I guess, in the state house prayers. But it didn't really go into much detail. So I was wondering, just you know, how big of a of an issue was this, and you know, how much debate was going on around it. Well, there was there was quite a lot of debate going on around it, but it, it wasn't so much <clears throat> that that I was. I mean, I, yes, I was standing up for the the fact that we had uh, at the beginning of every session day in both the House and the Senate. Yeah, we had a we had a prayer, an opening prayer. Right, and. We invited in ministers for a long time. I mean, it got to the point where it was hard to hard to get ministers to come in. But sure. Uh, but uh, for a long time, uh, and 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 many times, I'd, I'd have minister from my church. He felt honored to be able to come up and give the opening prayer. Yeah. In, in the legislature, and. Uh, and then there, but other, almost every legislator at some point in time would come in, and they, and then they, their minister would give the opening prayer. Right. And and my my feeling was that the Constitution says that you won't have a uh, that the state will not have will not support a particular religion right and it doesn't say that the state uh, cannot 
recognize all religions. Right. So my my feeling was that yes, if one of the legislators happened to be of Muslim faith, they could invite uh, their uh, church leader in. Right. Or if they were uh, if they were of the Jewish faith, they yep. could invite their rabbi in. Sure. And and they could they could give a prayer of however they wanted to give it. Right. And, and there there shouldn't be a restriction on who speaks before the house. And if uh, if you are agnostic or atheist. You don't have to. You're you're not required to stay there and listen if you don't want to listen. There there was no requirement for that. So yeah. my feeling was that yes, <clears throat> every religion should have the opportunity to come and give the, an opening prayer if they wanted to, mm-hmm. and and it it shouldn't be restricted to just Christian, but it shouldn't in any way um, impose restrictions against Christian uh, right. belief. Yeah, okay. The Constitution doesn't say that <clears throat> the government has to be so blind to, as to not right, recognize religions. It just says that the Constitution says you can't support religions. Right. And um, so, I mean, you can't support a particular religion, right? Right. And that that all came from England. And, yeah. And the formation of our country in the beginning, and our U.S. Constitution has basically the same thing in it as our state constitution. Has. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. Okay. And and and, and they have the, the difference is is that I think that the. The uh, U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives has a paid minister who gives a speech. <laughs> I mean, who gives mm. a prayer? <laughs> yeah. At the, at the opening of each session, so it's not it's not as uh, uh, free to all religions. But I don't know. Maybe they have restrictions on what the the minister will talk about. Yeah, but yeah. That, that would have, that would have been my position on it today, and it was it was my position then. So sure, okay, yeah. Um, let's see some. I got uh, a few more questions, kind of a big picture, kind of reflection questions. Um, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? to talk about the work that the General Assembly does or what I think the the most important work the General Assembly can do. I would say uh, can do. All right. Then my my feeling is the most important work that the Indiana General Assembly can do is to safeguard our Constitution. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And and our constitution is one that provides equal rights to everyone. And and so I I think I think at at this time with everything that's going on our legislatures not just Indiana but all legislatures need to be looking at what they can do to assure that everyone regardless of uh, their race or color or uh, or sexual orientation or whatever that they have the same rights as everyone else we're all individuals we are all different but we are all protected by the constitution to have equal rights right and uh, there needs there needs to be efforts by legislators to make sure that people are treated equally yeah and and uh, I, I think that and, and you're <clears throat> you're not going to you're not going to be able to pass a law that, that outlaws racism because racism is in the hearts of people right but you can you can pass laws that protect people from racism right and and I think I think that 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 would be a very important thing for our legislature to 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 work on is to make sure that we make sure first of all we protect our constitution and 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 secondly to make sure that we uphold what the constitution says yeah sure um how would you summarize your time as a legislator? Like overall, what do your what do you what do you think about your experiences there? Well, it's it's one of those things where I uh, I wouldn't uh, you, you you there is no way you could pay me enough to have not done it. Yeah, not served in the legislature. But there's no way you could pay me enough to have me do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, and, and, and you know another misconception that a lot of people have is, is that uh, that legislators are are crooked. Legislators are there to get rich. Yeah. Legislators uh, are or despicable people legislators are just like the my neighbor next door either side across the street yeah they're they're just they're just ordinary people who signed their name to a form thinking they wouldn't get elected and then surprisingly did yeah <laughs> <laughs> and they're serving in the legislature and and most of them don't think of the financial benefits or consequences yeah as an example i worked at potter and brumfield and they were good enough to provide me 
unpaid leave for however long I needed to serve in the legislature. Yeah. In other words, if I was off for uh, three months, uh, I would take a three-month unpaid leave. I'd fill out a form saying I'm leaving this date and we'll be back to this date. Well, if I got back earlier, I, then they, they would start paying me when I got back. But the, it, the, the thing is, <clears throat> most people would, wouldn't believe this, but, but even with the increases that were made in the pay for legislators over the years, which was done very infrequently, <clears throat> I lost more money with my unpaid leave it reduced my pension from my work. It reduced my 401k from my work more than what I got paid and any pension benefits and, and any, I, uh, I, I was in the legislature for 40 years and I get a $600 a month pension. Mm. And, uh, and I, uh, and, and that that period of time I was away reduced what I would get for a pension from Potter and Brumfield by more than what I'm getting. So what I'm trying to say is the overall balance financially, yeah, uh, what I what I earned at Potter and Brumfield or what I didn't earn at Potter and Brumfield while I was away was I, I lost more than I was paid, but I didn't worry about it. I continued to run because I, I truly enjoyed serving. I, I felt uh, fortunate and blessed for people to have confidence in me, to, sure. to have me there for 40 years and, uh, and, and to never have been defeated in 40 years was to me, a message from my constituents that I must have been doing something right. Yeah. Sure. Um, what lessons, if any, did you learn from your time in the legislature? I'll tell you what. I, I went to Oakland City University and I went to uh, University of Evansville and I could have gone, I mean, if, if I'd have gone to law school at, at, at Indianapolis, uh, which at one point in time before I ran for the legislature, I was thinking about doing that. Uh, or I could, or, or say, for instance, maybe I would have been able to get into Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that there's any institution of higher education better than the Indiana legislature. Mm, okay. I, I think you learn more in that educational institution than, than you can any college or university around the country. Yeah. It's, it's just um, a daily learning process. Right. And uh, I was I was proud to having been given the opportunity to serve and uh, shocked that 
I served. I was able to serve as long as I did. Sure. Um, but it was it it was it, it was an education every day. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Something something new going on all the time. Uh, so I uh, I don't know if I answered your question. No, I, that's good. I mean, I think it. Yeah, that's a that's a you know, pretty good answer because yeah, definitely it definitely is. Uh, uh, a real educational experience that I think many people don't understand at all. You're getting exposed to so many things going on in the state all the time. So, yeah, sir, serving on the uh, state budget committee was. <laughs> I, I remember. Uh, uh, I remember on one of our trips to a state park. To, to show you how uh, how ignorant I was and, and, and give you an example of something that I had learned I thought I was going to Pokegon State Park mm-hmm. well I, I found out that it's Pokegon okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no serving on the serving on the, the state budget committee and traveling around to all of the state properties, uh, higher education institutions, uh, prisons, uh, state forests, state parks, uh, uh, even even the casinos. Now we we would visit those uh, because they were a revenue source for the state. Sure. They didn't gain any revenue from me. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't give them any of my money. Right. Uh, I I majored in mathematics, and one of the things that I learned was statistics and <laughs> your your chances of coming out a winner uh, over on the long haul at a casino is zero. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Do you so, have, yeah so it was it, it it was very educational sure do you have any like uh, favorite story or anecdote from your time as a legislator well the, the my favorite story is serving with my brother and I was telling you that yeah that I had I had the uh, laptop yeah uh, Tandy sure <clears throat> my brother Donald was the first person to have a computer in the state house. Um, I think even before they had computers in legislative services, he had a Commodore 64. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, have you heard of that? I think so. Yeah, I think I've heard <laughs> that, of that one. Yeah. That, that was that was one that didn't have a hard drive at all. And yeah. No, no memory whatsoever. Uh, it was all uh, floppy drives. I had, I had a Commodore 128 at one point in time, but Donald had the the very first uh, computer, and he bought a silver reed printer to go along with. And he let, uh, I think, I think he let Mike Phillips uh, give that to one of the secretaries to use just 
because everybody, all, all the secretarial pool had uh, typewriters. I mean, everything was done on a typewriter. Yeah. And so if you type, if you typed a letter you, and, and you wanted to type this very same letter for another constituent, you had to put the paper in and type it again with with the Commodore 64 that he took up there with the silver reed printer you could type the letter and then you could you could run run that off on the silver reed printer and then run it off again and and write in the names and I mean it, it, he he was providing the first computer into the state house and if you get a chance to talk to him i'm sure he can tell you all about that yeah (laughs) because he he kind of thinks that the house was right up there with the senate when it comes to computerization but the difference is we developed the system and had it developed and then the house started using it too Uh. but we developed it first if he tells you they did (laughs) 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 <laughs> oh boy <laughs> um, let's see what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators boy if 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 I thought there was any chance that I could give advice to a legislator <laughs> and they would actually listen yeah my my advice to, to the legislature to to a legislator would be stand by your own values and do everything you can to to make sure that what you do is in compliance with the constitution right and is is treating everyone equally yeah and 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 just uh, try to spend as much time with your family as you can. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. That, that that's that that's in, that's important, and you don't realize how important it is until it's too late. Right. Sure. Um, what if any enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Pardon me. Uh, when it comes to thinking about the people of Indiana, uh, what, if any, enduring qualities do you think Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Well, I think, I think generally, uh, the people of Indiana, uh, still have the same values that, that Hoosiers have always had. And, and that is the, the, their 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 love of their family mm-hmm. and their uh, they're, they're just trying to trying to do the best with what they've got and what they can what, what so I, I think I think Hoosiers haven't really changed that much I although I do believe that um, uh, the divisiveness of of cable news yeah. and 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 uh, and social media 
mm-hmm. has has somehow caused um, them to overlook some of the values that they that they have have held dear all, all of the all of this time. Yeah, and and they're they're letting they're letting um, those. Um, stories that they see, um, and 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 the the twists that are placed on those stories influence their thinking. But I think I think generally that most Hoosiers are still uh, very good people and and mm-hmm. and care very much about their state and care very much about their country. Sure. I just wish they'd care enough that they'd vote Democratic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it seems to have taken a turn the other direction. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, what about the state of Indiana as a whole? How how have you seen the state change since you've been a lifelong Indiana resident? Well, I I, I think that probably. The biggest change that I've seen, and, and and part of this occurred over the forty years that I was in there, <clears throat> and I'm not saying that I take credit for it. It's just right. that I've seen, I've seen these changes. <clears throat> We've gone from uh, a, a society that that um, was. Your opportunities were were uh, limited um, to a greater degree than they are today. Mm. Um, give me to give you an example. We have scattered across this state so many uh, institutions of higher education that. Almost every uh, person who wants to improve their education is within driving distance um, of of a, a institution of higher education. Yeah, and and I think uh, those opportunities for education are are better than they were. Okay. Uh, I think I think that we we've, we've really improved that we've we've improved the uh, the transportation system. <clears throat> My brother and I worked on on trying to get I sixty nine through uh, and and fighting an uphill battle. <clears throat> we we weren't in a position where we could we could make it happen, but we were in a position to make people understand how important it was sure and we kept we kept working on that for years and years and years before there was ever a um, a spate of uh, dirt turn <clears throat> and uh, it, it um, uh, I, I think we especially in southern Indiana <clears throat> we have uh, better better uh, transportation systems now than 
than we had forty years ago. Yeah. Okay. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, so, so better access to education, better transportation, uh, 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 I, I, I don't know. I, uh, offhand, I can't, <laughs> I can't think of anything. No, that's good. Yeah. Profound. All right. Um, I see. I have, I have one more question for you. Um, what do you want Hoosiers to know about their role in relation to the function of the Indiana General Assembly? Their their role? Yes, like how they affect, you know, how the Indiana General Assembly works. What would you like them to know about that process and their their part in it? Well, I would first of all say that in every uh, every situation, that their input will not change the outcome. Mm-hmm. But there are certain situations where their input will certainly improve the outcome. Yeah, and and to give you an example of what I mean by that is, uh, I think that the uh, efforts of uh, teachers have made an impact on the funding of education, mm-hmm. and and they've made an impact on some some of the legislators uh, think that um, well. They, I haven't thought about this, but I, I think it's it's some of the legislators are 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 just the opposite of um, Donald Trump. Hmm. Donald Trump thinks testing is a bad thing uh, because it it makes the virus spread more mm-hmm. and legislators think that testing is a good thing because the more you test the better and my feeling is that testing in schools <laughs> has always been done teachers do it every day um, or every week mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's always for us to for us to establish um, all of these tests that the schools are required to, to give takes away from education time. Yeah. It's like a, a good friend of mine um, um, who was a Republican senator from Evansville, Greg Serber. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember him speaking uh, on on the, on a bill dealing with testing. And he said, it doesn't matter how many times you weigh a pig, it's not going to make it any fatter. Right. And he was referring to, your, it doesn't matter how many times you test a child, you're not going to make them any smarter by testing. Yeah, sure. So, you, uh, it's, it's, uh, 
and, and I don't know how I got started on that. But <clears throat> what was your question again? Oh, just uh, <laughs> just what you know. What what's the role of Hoosers when it comes to you know the oh, the relationship? Well, yeah, well yeah. my point my point was that, that yes, I think that the, that that um, for your particular interest, yeah, as a as a citizen of the state of Indiana. Uh, contacting and, and working with your legislator is extremely important. Yeah. Based, based on my experience, so much of the legislation that I worked on and, and got passed and, and feel was a good accomplishment was something that a constituent brought a particular problem to me. And I saw where it, they, that we could help resolve that problem with legislation mm-hmm. so so I, I would I would really encourage people to work with their legislators if the, if the legislators uh, have a, a legislative forum go to it and talk to the legislators don't just sit there and listen go to it and talk to the legislators and tell them what you're concerned about let them know that right? Uh, because I, I do think that legislators do listen and uh, unless they're all a lot smarter than I was or am uh, they don't know everything right? and, and they, they can learn a lot from their constituents so I I, I, I just thoroughly encourage them to uh, interact with their legislators um, don't don't sign a card that somebody gives you that says I'm for this or I'm for that or I'm against this or I'm against that don't sign a card that's pre-printed and send that in and think it's going to have any impact at all on the legislator right and those the, the only thing that happens to those is a a staff person will get your name and address and send you a form letter. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and that's uh, and, and it's and the legislators never going to see those cards and never going to know what your name or or opinion was. If but if you send a handwritten letter or one that you've prepared on word processor or whatever. And you've signed it, and it's your own thoughts and your own words. That legislator will read that, and it'll have an impact on on him or her. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Enjoyed talking to you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.